This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 5.11. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear, to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot, and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Christian Myers. Now, Christian is an Air Force veteran serving as a combat search and rescue special missions aviator. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, the role of the door gunner in search and rescue, mental health, his transition story, 
the Medivac podcast, his company Terra Armor, Psychedelics, the Human Performance Project 7X, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 730 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Christian Myers. Enjoy. Well, Christian, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, James. Really excited to be here. Uh, Love what you've done with your podcast. Well, likewise. I know you have one, and we're going to talk about that, and we are on the same 7X team, so hopefully about two and a half weeks from now, we'll be taking off from the US and heading around the world. Yeah, that's going to be excellent. I'm pretty pretty stoked, man. I don't know about you, but... uh, for me, uh, going to Antarctica, like uh, the entire trip, the the entire purpose for the trip is is huge, and I mean it's enormous. It's a huge undertaking, and what what the team's trying to accomplish is is phenomenal. Honestly, the the work that they're doing, it's going to be invaluable for military special operators, you know, military servicemen and women, and and first responders alike. I think it's going to be huge, but. Um, the opportunity to to partake in something like this, uh, I feel I feel lucky and honored. And going to Antarctica is going to be pretty cool too. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I only know a few people who have ever been. And it's always been like one of those things like, ah, who goes to Antarctica? How do you get there? Like, how do you even show up there? It's going to be a, kind of a cool experience, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to unpack 7X towards the end. Very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in San Antonio, Texas. So uh, Military City, USA. That's- I think that's what they call it. I believe so. My uh, my in-laws live in shirts, so right on the outskirts. Oh yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I actually that's that's where I just moved from. I I was in shirts as well. <laughs> All world. It is indeed. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, so uh, I was born in a little town called Tracy, California. So I'm a California native, but. Tracy is not one of the uh, the beach towns or anything like that. It's smack dab in the center of California. It's a it's a farming community. It's a little cow town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but uh, I was born out there in in ninety one to uh, uh, to my parents, uh, Tim and Lisa. Uh, fantastic people. Um, so born and raised in Tracy. Nothing nothing noteworthy there. I had I had a pretty uh, I'd say normal childhood for the most part. Um, we grew up. Uh, not not well off by any means, but you know, lower middle class, so pretty average. Um, I spent most of my my childhood and teenage years on a skateboard. Um, so for the most part, uh, most of my my hobbies and activities were focused on on being outdoors or, or doing extreme sports. So whether that's skateboarding or dirt biking, uh, BMX, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, surfing. Um, I got a lot of those inspirations from my dad, who grew up, um, you know, surfing and, and skateboarding. 
you know, through the seventies and the eighties, um, that definitely played a role in my, uh, in my childhood. Um, so that was, that was my major passions then. And my, my parents, uh, my, my dad was a mechanic for years. Uh, and then he transitioned into government work actually. So he's a, uh, he's a specialized mechanic for, um, like, uh, can't say too much because it's, it's somewhat classified, but Lawrence Livermore lab where they, they actually just did the nuclear fission uh, or nuclear fusion. I don't know if you saw that. That's where he works and he works on all of the equipment that manages a lot of those, those testing and, and like the facilities and, and things like that. And my mom was a uh, graphic designer and, and, and an artist for uh, all of her life as well. So I got two different, uh, very, very uh, like a big split between my parents, my dad's very, uh, focused on engineering and mechanics. My mom's very free flowing and, and kind of hippy dippy. <laughs> so I had a, you know, kind of a dichotomy there with my parents, but uh, very loving family, um, good upbringing. Um, I've got one younger brother, Cameron. Um, he's, uh, he's four years younger than me. He followed me into the, into the military as well. And we actually work together now outside of the military, which is, it's a pretty cool opportunity. Not many people get a, a chance to work with their family members or, you know, it's or their their brother, you know. Beautiful. Now I mean, I think I heard you in in your podcast where you kind of had the microphone flipped on yourself by your co-host and friend. Um, yeah. Did you? Am I right in understanding your grandfather was in World War Two? Yes. Yeah. So my my dad's father, he was in World War Two. Uh, he was in the Navy, drafted. Um, he did um, explosives ordnance. So it wasn't necessarily like EOD or UDT or anything like that, but anything to do with explosives is what he dealt with. Um, as well as on the engineering side on some, uh, on some ships. Um, and he actually transitioned out of the Navy and he stood up, um, a, an explosives research facility in, uh, central California, um, which is kind of cool. So he got to, you know, blow shit up for his whole life, which <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you. It sounds like the coolest job in the world. <laughs> it does to me. Yeah. Getting paid to blow stuff up. And then, uh, yeah, my, my mom's uncle, was in Vietnam as well. So another inspiration for, for the military. He was a combat medic in Vietnam, two bronze stars, um, and one of the most humble and, and joyous joyous men I've ever had the, the pleasure of being around. Um, and it, both of them were, were, I would say, inspirations to join the military. But um, in, in addition to that, you know, some close friends of mine had joined the military prior to me, guys who had graduated high school a year or two ahead of me. They joined the military and they were also an inspiration for that as well. So we have pretty much completely lost the World War II voice now. I mean, obviously the, the final, you know, men that we have left, men and women are, you know, to the point where they're not able to be super articulate anymore. Yeah. And then you have a comparison where, so you have the World War II, which we would perceive were all welcome home, even though actually when you unpack that a little bit, there was you know, a jarring element, even for that generation, they didn't just get to come back and everyone hugged them and then they went to work. But then conversely, you have the Vietnam generation, which could have been you know, the other end of the spectrum where they came yeah. back and a lot of times were spit on. I've had some of the vets on here talking about some of the horror stories when they returned, especially if you think about the draft, some of these people didn't even want to go to war in the first place. Yeah. When you look at your uncle and your grandfather, were there any elements that you saw the trauma of war was still present? And then if not, if not, were there any areas where you saw that they'd use something that helped them overcome the trauma of war? With my grandfather, uh, not, not so much. He, he died when I was, uh, when I was a bit younger. So he died in 2007. Um, so I was 14, 15 years old when, when he, when he passed, 
I had a great relationship with him. Um, but you know, he was, he was considerably older. He was born in 23. Um, so there was a big age difference there. You know, he was in his late eighties already when I was, you know, 14 years old. So our relationship wasn't necessarily, um, you know, deep, uh, or it's, we we didn't talk about things like that. Um, so I, I couldn't comment on that so much, but with my uncle, absolutely. I, even to this day, he can't fly, he can't set foot on an airplane. Um, and his, you know, he's got his, uh, grandchildren live across the country. He's in California. He's got grandchildren in North Carolina. And instead of, you know, flying across the country, he drives across the country twice a year to go visit them for a couple weeks at a time. It's, you know, learning to live with those limitations is important, I guess, if you're going to impose them or, or if you're going to not try to address those issues, like, like, you know, and understandably, I, I understand why he doesn't want to, I, I get it. Um, he's kind of set in his ways now, um, but he still, he understands his limitations and he modifies to make sure that he can still make time for his family. Right. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some of that trauma still. Um, and, and even just having a basic discussion about his time in Vietnam, it's off the table. Um, I'm the only person in the family he's, he's been able to speak to about it. And even then it's been limited. Um, and again, I understand it, but coming from my perspective and being very vocal and very open about my experiences overseas, um, as well as discussing, having you know, multiple discussions on our podcast with men and women who have been deployed from pretty much every major war the last 40 years. I've seen both sides of the coin that it, it can be really detrimental to just bottle it up and not discuss it, but being overly vocal about it too can, you know, you don't want to beat your chest about it either. I think there's a, a fine balance to walk. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about being in the you know the extreme sports arena. I've had guests on here who they were skateboarders and some of the other sports, and they were straight edge. They, you know it, that yeah. that community kept them very very um, you know on the straight and narrow. Obviously, that community can also be the other side where there can be you know crime and addiction, just like any group really. Yeah. What groups did you find yourself around when you were doing these sports? Yeah. So, uh, well, when I was younger, so I've been in extreme sports my entire life. Um, as, as an adult, I, I strayed from skateboarding and ended up getting into skydiving and base jumping and, and other sports like that. But when I was younger, um, yeah, I was really, really focused on the skateboarding community. And that's something that we saw a big split. And it was mostly between like the, the older, like the, the generational split, the slightly older guys uh, who were around, they were the ones who were, you know, drinking in the afternoon, smoking, you know, doing petty crime, that, that kind of stuff. And the younger of us, um, the, the younger crew of us definitely kept it more on the straight and narrow. And those of us who kind of graduated from extreme sports um, in our later teenage years, I think we had a bit of an escape. Um, we didn't just stick with it and and find that to be our norm. I feel like a lot, a lot of the guys and girls who stuck with those in you know, 16, 17, graduating high school and just staying around the same community, kind of ended up spiraling or stagnating. Um, they ended up in those, you know, being addicted to drugs or alcoholism or ending up in petty crime or just, you know, just a, a low income lifestyle like that. It's, it's not, not a very fun place to be or to, to, to put yourself in. So I was thankful that I was able to avoid that, but for the most part, that was due to the, the people that I surrounded myself with. Um, they weren't really into drinking and doing drugs. Um, and then I quickly join the military afterwards, which didn't really give me an opportunity to, to experience that. So that kind of shifted my direction, you know, for me, you know, as it were. <laughs> 
But I want to get to your career path. But just before we do, we're going to talk about, you know, like so many people on here, people in the uniform professions can often struggle later in their career. Um, But one of the least discussed areas, I think, of mental health in the first responders and military is what happened before we ever put the uniform on. When you look with this lens that you have now at early life, you mentioned that your parents were amazing people. Were there any areas or elements of your younger years that you think maybe rocked the foundation a little bit later? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my, my parents were fan, or they are fantastic people. I have a very good relationship with them now. <clears throat> but when I was younger, um, I definitely, uh, looking back on it, and especially after um, taking care of my own mental health the last couple of years, it's given me a lot of opportunity and it's forced me to be introspective about my younger years and, and my childhood and my upbringing. And there was a lot of um, time in my, my my childhood where I had to be self-sufficient or sometimes I would impose it on myself um, uh, to t- take it off my parents' plate. Like I would notice that they had, they had too much focus on what was going on in their lives, um, whether that was uh, with work or, or financial struggles or, or whatever it was. And I tried not to add to the plate, you know, so I'd be self-sufficient. Um, and that's something that I've, after being introspective and, and, and meditating on years later, kind of, and kind of walking through, um, it made me realize that that's something that I continued to do for years after. Like if I noticed somebody, uh, they had a little too much on their plate, I would, I would try not to bring up my own, my own issues. Um, but at the same time, what I realized I was doing was not being vulnerable, right? So if I'm not sharing my own issues, especially with those who are close to me, um, friends or family members, or people in a romantic relationship, right? If I'm not expressing my own issues and I'm just bottling it up and I'm holding on to it and I'm not being open about it, I'm actually putting those walls up and uh, um, and not not being as close uh, to the person as I need to be or as I would want to be, you know? I think by putting those walls up, it it's, acts as a detriment to your relationship. And I think that's something that stemmed from my childhood by um, just by trying to take less or trying to put less on their plates, you know, if that makes sense. No, it does completely. And it's interesting because some people have these horrendous stories of abuse and, you know, abandonment. And then other people's, it's a little bit more chronic, but it's still an element. And like you said, if you've basically created a repetition of suppressing emotion when you're young then that's definitely not going to give you a good skill set when you get into an environment where you have you know life or death stresses thrown at you exactly yeah and that's what i ended up finding myself in and ultimately it's what resulted in in me developing uh, mental health struggles long term in the military because i i applied that same that same application that I had when I was when I was younger, where I didn't want to express the emotions that I was feeling, I didn't want to talk about it, I didn't want to work through them. I just wanted to stuff it down and not bother anyone else. Well, that came to a tipping point or a boiling point eventually, which you know ca- caused a, a whole lot of other issues for me that I had to spend years working on to to rectify and and to get to you know a comfortable point where I, I find myself today. But yeah, it, it definitely played a, a large role in in um my unwillingness to discuss it early on which ultimately would have helped me but you know hindsight right (laughs) 2020 exactly exactly (laughs) well i know the military wasn't the initial profession that you were heading into so talk to me about um the career you were thinking of and then your experience in that particular profession 
Yeah. So I actually, uh, when I, when I first started, uh, or when I first graduated high school, I, I, my intentions were to be a firefighter. Um, I had always had a huge respect for the fire service, um, and the medical community, like the emergency medicine side of things. It always intrigued me and, and being able to partake in saving someone's life, um, and having a community like the fire fire service, it, for whatever reason it spoke to me. Um, I, I, there's a lot of reasons why it spoke to me, <laughs> um, but it, it did. And uh, after graduating high school, I graduated a little bit early. I was young. I was uh, just 17 when I graduated. Um, but I started college um, to get my EMT and I started doing uh, the fire service training. Um, they had a, our local community college had a full fire service training where you can do all your prerequisite courses prior to attending the academy. And when I was there, it was inundated with people. Um, who had, they had a better resume than me. Um, they were more well-connected than me um, or they were just more interested in putting in the work. And for me, I I just, I think I was a little too lazy. Um, I wasn't disciplined. I didn't have the additional connections. I hadn't done wildland firefighting, like volunteers, like a lot of these guys had done over the summers. Um, so I was missing a lot of those prerequisites. And I, I kind of find myself uh, bored in college. Like I was learning these things. It was exciting to me, but it, it, I saw, I kind of saw the future that, okay, I'm, I'm going to just stay here in my hometown or, or near my hometown. I'm not really expanding my horizons around the people, uh, that I, and I don't know that I'm going to end up in the fire service, right? It's super competitive, especially this was 2009. Um, it was incredibly, uh, competitive at that point. There was, you know, 300 people all applying for the same exact class, uh, you know, for a class of 30. Um, so even just getting into the classes to attend the college courses was, was difficult in itself. Um, and I kind of saw the writing on the wall, like, man, it's going to be seven, eight years before I, I can even land a job here. Like, what am I going to do in the meantime? Uh, and that's, you know, kind of when I, I started searching uh, for alternate solutions and, and a couple of friends made recommendations that why don't you go join the military for a few years and, and give that a shot. It'll bolster up your resume. You can come back and be a firefighter. You know, you'll be 22, 24, 26 years old. You can still apply for the fire service and, and progress with that career. I said, you know, okay, well, maybe that that's, that's a good option too. And so I started looking into the military from there, but um yeah, I was always passionate about being a firefighter. I just don't think that it was ultimately in the cards or it just would have been a stroke of luck to end up with, you know, a job in Central California or the Bay Area as a firefighter. It's the number one paid, you know, position. They, they all start out super high end. Um, you know, they all get paid like, you know, 110, 120 a year starting. So everyone wants to apply for those positions and just the competition there seemed a little too difficult or a little too daunting. So I wanted to, I don't know, uh, bolster up my deck a little bit, you know, with some experience. Well, I think your timing was good. I worked for Anaheim, California from 05 to 08. And when I got to California, my friends were all telling me, oh, you got to get this mortgage. You know, there's this one now, it's called subprime, and all you have to do is pay the interest. And I'm looking oh, no. at these houses coming from Florida and these houses, you know, like a 800 square foot house built in the 50s, it's like $800,000. I'm like, this is almost a million dollars for this little shack. What the fuck is wrong with you people? And then anyway, we have the housing crash. That's exactly what's wrong with you people. Um, and then I actually had moved back to Florida, ended up getting divorced, found out when I was at the station, I wasn't the only person in my house. Um, and uh, so anyway, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to move back out west then because I'd moved back for my family. 
with okay. my with my son because my my ex I think had shown an interest in going back separately so that we'd be in the same area. But anyway, my my department was like, no, you got a hiring freeze now, and because uh, we had it in our clause for three years, you could go back, no questions, if you left on good terms. And uh, okay. like three and a half years, they opened up their hiring process again. So uh, so you made a great 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 choice. And then after that, they go, oh, you got to be a California Fire Academy graduate. I'd worked yeah. for this department three and a half years, but my my thing was in Florida, and they're like, oh, you don't qualify now. And I'm like, okay, God, I get it. I'm not supposed to fucking go back to California. Yeah, but, all these things standing in your way. Yes, yeah. exactly. Sometimes it, yeah, sometimes the decision's made for us, right? 100%. So, so yeah, so I think you made a great choice because it probably would have been years, you know, because everything was in a hiring freeze at that point. So walk me through your recruiting story. I've heard so many different people from, you know, horror stories through to Mac, Pat McNamara, whose dad sent a lawyer with him. That's a pretty interesting story. Um, yeah. what, how did you find the Air Force? And then as far as you getting the actual position that you're hoping to get? Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, so I was in I was in the my fire classes, and there was an older guy there uh, who ended up. He's been one of my best friends since uh, met him in, in in an EMT class. Zach Baker, um, he had retired or not retired. He had gotten out of the Air Force. I think he had done six years at that point, and he was in the class with uh, me and my my best friend Aaron. Aaron uh, was going to join the Air Force uh, National Guard out of California to be a pararescue man. Um, and Zach had just gotten out of the Air Force and, you know, they were both kind of pushing me in either direction, um, kind of giving me some some pointers. And uh, Zach, you know, he's like, dude, you're not going to get hired to the fire service. Uh, you need some experience. Like if anyone like between the two of us, if we both apply for the job, I'm going to get it because I have the experience. You should go do that. Um, and that way you can just walk it right into a department. And Aaron, uh, my buddy, who's going to be a PJ. He goes, hey man, they've got um, they don't have any openings for uh, these other posi- positions right now, but they have this opening where you can be a gunner on on helicopters. So you basically just shoot a minigun from a helicopter. I'm like, well, that sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> it's like, so how do I get that job? Um, and at a stroke of luck, there was uh, um, there was a recruiter, and they had uh, they had a H60 a base about two hours from where I was in college. Um, so I got with a recruiter. Uh, I got a private tour of one of the helicopters. Uh, I got a, one of the gunners who ended up being my my first supervisor, uh, Rabbit is his name, a phenomenal human being. Um, he walked me around the helicopter, showed me, uh, you know, the basic gist of the job, you know, yeah, shooting miniguns from a helicopter. It's pretty cool, right? And that was all I could see. I had, I had blinders on at that point. And that's, you know, yeah, it sounds awesome. Miniguns and 50 cows on a helicopter. And what do we do? We do rescue. Like, that's cool. But like, I'm really focused on this part. It seems cool. And then it kind of settled in and I started to understand what, what rescue was. Um, and I learned a lot more as I went through my training and especially up to my first deployment. But while I was in that, um, that recruiting process and I had just signed up. So I had signed up for the air force on April 1st. So, uh, April Fool's Day, so I called my mom and, <laughs> "Hey, mom, <laughs> I just uh, <laughs> I just signed up for the military. You want to come to my swear again?" And she goes, "Oh yeah, ha, ha, yeah, April Fool's." I'm like, "Oh no, no, actually, like we're gonna do it this afternoon if you want to come on out." So, <laughs> uh, so my parents they were supportive of it. <clears throat> they knew I had light intentions of it, but I just I signed up on on a whim um, when when they you know they said miniguns and helicopters, so I signed up. Uh, but my parents were supportive of it. They came out and watched me swear in. <clears throat> and uh, while I was in the the debt program, the delayed entry program, my 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 other best friend David, uh, who's now my business partner, 
Um, he was a second bat ranger, so he was a 275 ranger, and he was deployed on his second deployment, um, or his third deployment, rather, just a couple months after I had enlisted, and I was in the the debt program, and I got a phone call one night uh, from him, and he sounds super lethargic. Um, he's not really answering questions straightly. I'm like, hey, you know, what's going on? And uh, he's like, hey, man, I uh, just you know wanted to let you know I got I got blown up uh, the other day. Like, like, what do you mean? What do you mean you got blown up? You know, this is a guy that I had grown up with, been my best friend for years, and like, I could hear the di- the distress in his voice. And I can, I still have a visceral memory of it today. Like, I had to sit down. Um, he's like, yeah, I got blown up the other day. I lost my leg, um, and I, I don't know what's going to happen now. He's like, I'm alive. I, I'm not going to die. Um, but you know, I just want to let you know this is what happened. Um, and it kind of clicked for me that like, oh shit, my, my best friend just stepped on a bomb. He got blown up and he got rescued in combat. Like that's the job I just signed up for is to go pull people out. Like, like him, like, uh, like that is what I just signed up for. I had this kind of, oh shit moment. Like, man, he's a special operator. He's a second bat ranger. These are the, you know, some of the hardest, hardest dudes of all time and they need rescue like who does that like that's what we're going to end up doing so did i just sign up to put myself in the worst possible positions of all time like and that that was kind of where where my head was at like oh shit like what this war is only progressing this was 2010 or 2009 2010 time frame so this war is only progressing what did i just get myself into um so i i definitely had some realizations there and that that's kind of my recruiting process but um it it set me up in a way that it gave me really deep personal ties to rescue right off the bat, like without even going to basic training yet. Like I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, I want to be one of the people who can be a, a, that pivotal moment in someone else's life when they need someone else to be there for them. Like I want to be that person. I want to be on the team of people who want to be that, that person and that team to go save someone else's life. Um, so that's that it really locked it in for me there. So I've had multiple perspectives of, of the kind of arena that you were working in. I've had, you know, PJs on here, SAR techs, um, you know, pilots with the the SAR teams. And uh, I would I would say if I was ever 18 again and got to go into any sort of position, I wouldn't be the right person for a SEAL team or maybe even not a Ranger. But I've always said, well, to the power rescue world, the search and rescue world seems to be the right fit for someone who also ultimately became a firefighter and a paramedic. So what a real through line in here when I have so many people, you know, of, of whatever tier they're in in the military, especially the top tier, a common comment that's made is we hold police and fire to the same level as ourselves. Mm-hmm. And once I got over the kind of ego side of it, I was like, well, that makes perfect sense because we, you know, so others might live. That's firefighter paramedics as well and law enforcement. Yep. So there is a, a varying degree of understanding the magnitude of, of what we do, whether it's the employer, whether it's the individual, um, the level of training, fitness, equipment, etc. Talk to me about that arena that you were involved with. What were the standards? What was the diligence of training and the selection like to ensure that that group of men and women that you had at that helicopter at that moment were able to do the job that was needed? Yeah, abs- absolutely rigorous standards, um, and and rightfully so. Um, and I agree with what you said, um, finding yourself uh, to not be the type of person who would want to be a SEAL or a Ranger 
you have to, it's a very specific type of person, but it's also a very specific type of person who wants to be on the rescue end of things, right? You have to be, you have to be gung ho to be a ranger or a green beret and, and want to go shoot people in the face. <laughs> and that's, that's the direction you have to want to go, but to want to put yourself in harm's way so that you can save someone's life. Um, honestly, it's for me, I, I find it akin to an adrenaline rush, uh, like uh, much, much like extreme sports. I find it's very, very similar to extreme sports. Whereas on the other end of the aspect, you're, you're self-reliant, you're self-sufficient. Usually you find yourself in small teams or working by yourself oftentimes. Whereas on the, the ranger or seal side, that's much more like team sports, right? You have to be much more like a baseball player, football player, that that type. So I think that's where the, that split was. But the ultimately the mindset is is very much the same and the standards that are upheld are very much the same. So the selection process and the uh the um the, the training process is uh focused on schoolwork a lot more than the physical side of things for the job that i found myself in so initially i was an aerial gunner on h60s um which isn't a whole lot of the metal medicine side my primary duties were to be the onboard tactician um, weapons expert and then uh, obviously uh, you know we we dealt with uh fixing or um troubleshooting any of the weapon systems and the defensive systems on board the aircraft, as well as radio communications. So those were the three things that we really focused on um, in my, my first job as a gunner. Um, but working in a team aspect, so in uh, a rescue element, in an Air Force combat rescue element, uh, you have your H-60 asset. So that's your, uh, your Pave Hawk. It's a highly modified version of a Black Hawk. We have two pilots up front. We have a gunner, an engineer, and that's since changed. But we had a gunner on the left side, a flight engineer on the right side, and then two or three PJs in the back of the helicopter. So the pilots, they, they do pilot things. They shake the sticks up front, and you know that's <laughs> that's more or less what they do. Um, obviously, an incredibly important role, um, and we can talk about a little, uh, that a little bit later. Um, we've already discussed what a gunner does, but a uh, flight engineer, they're on board uh uh, purpose was to also act as a an aerial gunner for the right side of the helicopter, but they would also monitor all the onboard systems. So whether that's um, fuel calculations and computations, power requirements for takeoff and landing in austere environments, as well as operating the rescue hoist on the right side of the helicopter. So we've got 200 feet of cable on the right side of the helicopter, so we can insert and extract people in any, any place uh, possible, which gives us um, you know, pretty unique capabilities when it comes to the rescue. And then the pararescue men in the back were obviously they're, they're highly, highly trained special operators and, uh, combat medics. So they're, they're trained all the way out to like trauma surgery, um, in, in some, some aspects. So that group, uh, together, it's a very, very powerful asset that can operate, um, in a multitude of arenas, whether that's uh, civilian rescue, if we're in, in response to hurricanes, um, like, uh, hurricanes or other wildfire, natural disasters here stateside. If we're doing medevac overseas where, you know, a Marine gets shot, blown up and they need uh, a rescue element to go out and pick them up, provide medicine and transport for the way back all the way into combat rescue or combat search and rescue, which is a delineation between medevac. Um, the, that defining line is if say you're a pilot who's in uh, a country you shouldn't be in and you get shot down, who's going to come in and save you? Well, that's that's our primary role. So our, our assets, we have the ability to infiltrate a country while being undetected by a radar and other SAM, uh, SAM systems. 
we can recover that, that downed asset, that downed personnel and exfil, exfiltrate the country without being detected. So that's ultimately what combat search and rescue is. Having all of those different areas that we operate in, it takes a very, very uh, dedicated person to uh, not only you know be able to operate in these arenas, but operate efficiently in these arenas. So the, you have to be very studious. You have to be really on point um, with your knowledge about the systems on board the helicopter, how we integrate with other assets, um, how to avoid other uh, detection assets, as well as understanding how they all work together. Because a lot of these um, integrated air defense systems, well, they, they speak to each other, especially like if we're infiltrating a different country. So you have to understand how, what, what these other countries, what we're going up against, the types of threats, how they integrate together and how to avoid them effectively while being able to operate in an environment like that. So it's, it's kind of like having a, you know, a group of nerds who are somewhat, somewhat physically capable at the same time where we're not, we're not the most badass like door kickers, but you know, we're all, we're also pretty smart. So it's kind of like a, kind of a, a balance to walk where you have to be effective on, on both ends of that spectrum, I'd say. Um, but yeah, the, the training's the very intense, very rigorous. Um, most, uh, Rotary wing assets, um, whether it's the Navy or the Army, they don't train out to the standards that we do. Um, so the standards we train to are final standards. So whether that's flying under NVGs, uh, doing brownout approaches where we can't even see the ground because it's there's so much dust kicking up, uh, whiteout approaches, so flying in snow terrain, aerial refueling behind uh, you know behind the the C-130s. Um, flying over water, water at night, uh, you know, doing night water is, is one of the most risky things you can possibly do. So these are all standards that we train to at the very base level. Whereas if you look at the army, like the SOAR special operations, um, aviation in the army, those are their special operations standards. So the air force, we only have one standard and that is the highest possible standard you can meet. Um, so we're more akin to, I'd say the standards of what the SOAR does, um, but obviously a different mission parameter. Now, how are you able to maintain those standards? Again, we have such a, a varying spectrum within the fire service from some phenomenal teams and departments through to the other side of the spectrum. One of the issues that I've seen in my career is a lot of times when you want to have the training to maintain this jack of all trades skill set that we have, you're taking vacation time and you're paying out of your own pocket to go to rope classes, extrication classes, you know, advanced airway classes, etc. What were the tools that you guys were given and how were you able to maintain after you, after you got through the initial on-ramp to maintain those skills through your career? Yeah, so the, the training requirements and continued training requirements were, were, were just as rigorous. Um, so we have uh, currencies that we have to maintain, right? As aviators and operators, we have, we have to maintain certain currencies to make sure that we're not only, um, you know, proficient um, or, you know, not only qualified, but proficient too, right? So we would have to do these uh, emergency procedure sorties. You have to do those every six weeks. You have to make sure you're flying at least four or five, six times a month. You have to make sure that you're doing aerial gunnery once a month. You have to make sure you're doing hoist operations once a month. You have to actually go out and fly formation. You have to fly mixed formations. Um, you have to do your uh, over water. You have to do night water. So we have all these, you know, this litany of different currencies we have to maintain. And it can be pretty difficult, um, especially with the additional duties that they pile on in the military, right? So 
if you're if you're in one of these positions, well, guess what? You're also making sure that you're scheduling. Like one of your additional duties is going to be to schedule the entire flight uh, flight schedule. So every flight that's going on, that's someone's job. Managing uh, communications and cryptology, another job. Resource advisor, another job. So making sure that people have man days, uh, they have the equipment that's necessary. Um, you know, unit deployment managers, making sure that we're all spun up. Everyone's training is it, you know at the proper currency prior to leaving for deployment, making sure all our gear is tied together. So they really pile a lot of additional shit on top of the litany of currencies we already have to maintain. So what, what do they provide us? <laughs> I'll be honest and say they don't provide a whole lot of, of leeway when it, when it comes to that stuff. A lot of the times you're, you're falling off. Um, a lot of the times we aren't able to maintain all of our currencies because there were so many additional duties. There was so much additional red tape and, and bullshit and bureaucracy that we had to deal with. It made it really difficult actually to maintain currencies a lot of time, a lot of times. And to be completely honest, it, it reduces our proficiency. Um, so I will say that choosing to be in that career, you have to really want it. Just like you said, like you have a lot of currencies to maintain in the fire service. Well, when you, when you have to continue that education and they're not providing it for you, yeah, you're going to take your vacation days. You're going to go learn how to do this additional stuff by yourself. You're studying on your own time. You're learning on your own time because it's, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's not just a job. Like you are in this, this is your entire life. Um, so it, it is necessary to, to push that hard um, continually. If you want to be there, you will be there. But if you don't want to be, you don't have to be, right? Absolutely. What's interesting as well, it sounds like we had some of the same problems where you have fire departments given us what I would argue is busy work. I mean, what you're talking about planning a flight that's still pertinent to what you're doing, you know, they'll be testing hydrants and installing smoke alarms and doing online training and things that really aren't in reinforcing muscle memory because they want mm. to keep these people busy well if anyone stands in a metropolitan area and listens you're going to hear sirens all day long these people yeah. are already busy so mm. we have to free up time for them to be able to do the training so they can maintain their skills and it's such a hard conversation because people are oh but they got to do this you know speak to this school and they go test these hydrants and and it's like yeah they don't have to do any of that stuff we have prevention to speak to the schools we have the water department can test the hydrants these people need to be working on their skills because lives are at stake absolutely yeah we, we found ourselves in that same boat uh a lot of times and i don't want to talk too much shit but it's it's just the reality it's reality of the situation um it's I'm, I'm not trying to talk shit here it's it's just it's the way it works um so for for anyone interested like that's you got to know what you're getting yourself into and i think it's very similar with public service whether that's police officers or firefighters emts like you're going to find yourself in those positions. You have to really want to be there or you know, you'll quickly find yourself not there anymore. Absolutely. Well, where did you find yourself deployed first? So my first deployment. Um, so yeah, I, I finished up my training. It was about a year and a half or uh, just under two years of, of training overall to be fully qualified and, and mission qualified. Um, so I found myself... Uh, Six months out of training, um, we we deployed to Afghanistan for the first time. So this was in 2013. Yeah, early 2013. We left in January of 13 um, to uh, Bastion, Afghanistan, which was just down the street from Kandahar. Um, it was uh, it was a really busy deployment. Um, we, yeah, I was I was 21 years old, so you know, right, right, fresh out of training, show up in Afghanistan, and um, our primary goal there is 
combat rescue, Kazavac, and Medivac. So we're there supporting uh, multiple elements, including uh, the Brits who were out there. Um, they were co-located with us on Bastion and uh, Camp Leatherneck, as well as supporting a lot of marine, marine elements out there uh, who were operating in the Hellman Valley. Um, so that was our, our primary primary mission parameters out there was doing that. Um, and we got thrown right into the mix. <laughs> like my, my first, my first mission, um, it, it was, it was hectic to, to say the least, you know, we had done a ton, a ton of training, uh, up to that point. Primarily we were training in, uh, the desert out in 29 Palms, you know, out in the, uh, Southern California desert out there, which, uh, does a fantastic job of mimicking, um, the environments that we found ourselves in Afghanistan flying into that really moon uh, style of dust when you get the helicopter 80 or 100 feet over that the dust is rising and you can't see the ground anymore so you're trusting your instruments to be able to land in isolated areas doing that at night with zero illumination under night vision it's i mean it is one of the most dangerous elements that we we found ourselves in uh so we really really took the training seriously up to that point made sure we were fully prepared to enter that, that, that arena. We were training with the Marines quite a bit. So we had a good relationship, good working relationship with the Marines. We understood how they operated and how to properly integrate um, ourselves to go, you know, recover them if, if, if we needed to. And we found ourselves doing that pretty often. Um, so in 2013, I flew about 125 combat missions, um, some of those, you know, we would fly three, four, five, six a day sometimes. Other times we would have four or five day, days where we wouldn't do, we you know, didn't do anything. Um, much like the fire service, it's 98% boring and 2% sheer terror, right? <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of sitting around waiting for the bell. And then when the bell goes off, it's like, all right, let's let's see what we got ourselves into. Um, so my yeah, my first first mission was really interesting. Um we were uh, sitting at our, our little Pedro compound, um, you know, bullshitting, waiting for the bell to ring. And uh, sure as shit, the bell rings. Uh, so we get attention on the net over the, our little radios, attention on the net, scramble, scramble, scramble. There's two primary calls you're going to get. Um, scramble means drop what you're doing, sprint to the helicopter, get it started and take off and, and start flying. The only three pieces of data that we need to, to actually launch on a mission are threat, location and condition. That's all we need to know to, to get off the ground and start heading towards someone. It's a very, very different parameters than uh, what like dust off uh, or tricky, um, who is the, the British medevac element. They, they need armed support to, to go in. If they're doing a medevac, they need to know who their support element is. Do they have Apaches or little birds with them? Who's going in to protect them as a Pedro element? We're armed already. We, we don't need those additional parameters. So we can launch in a matter of moments. Uh, so we get that scramble call, sprint out to the helicopter, get it started. I think we're off the ground in you know um, about nine minutes. Our our like when we were shit hot, we were doing about seven eight minutes, like from scramble to to pulling pulling pitch and getting off the ground. Uh, it was pretty quick turnaround uh, for you know, starting a big ass helicopter or two of them rather, <laughs> and getting a group of uh, you know twelve or sixteen dudes out there uh, to take off. Um, so we we take off. We get uh, word that it's an IED strike. Um, so there was a uh, a couple of uh, there's a group of Navy SEALs who are doing AAA with some uh, ANSOF guys. So they're advising, assist, and accompanying. That's what they call AAA: advise, assist, accompany the ANSOF, which is Afghani Special Operations Forces. So basically, it's a bunch of SEALs babysitting Afghani Special Forces on how to be special operators. 
um, you know, how to do patrols, how to act in special operations. And while they're out on patrol, uh, they step on an IED. Um, so one of the SEALs, uh, he's a, I think, yeah, he was a bilateral amputee. So uh, both legs right right about the knee. Um, and then his left hand, he was missing some fingers. And the Afghani who was next to him, who had stepped on the IED, um, just missing his face. Um, he was still alive, but he didn't have a face anymore. It was just like, you know, it was just a hamburger mess on his face, which is pretty interesting. Um, but anyways, so we're, we're flying out that direction. Usually when we get a few minutes out, we, uh, we tell them to pop smoke. I don't want to get too much into the, uh, you know, the, the details of how we do that, but we, we talk to them over secure communications and we tell them to pop smoke. We verify a color to make sure that, yes, this is who we're talking to. Yes. We're looking for this color smoke. Um, and we're, we're right over the coordinates, pop smoke, and we don't see anything. So we're looking around like, hey, did you guys pop the smoke? Like, yep, it's going right now. We don't see shit. Okay, well, confirm your coordinates. Yep, coordinates check. Like, wait, wait, what do you mean? Like, coordinates check, and there's no smoke. Like, there, there's a disconnect somewhere. And they realize, oh, we passed the wrong coordinates. So they had told us the wrong coordinates while their you know, friends are bleeding out, which you know goes back to nine-line training, right? Make sure you know where you're at. That's, that's the number one most important thing. Where are you? Um, so they pass updated coordinates. So we shift, it's only about a mile away. So just, just about a minute for us to fly over that direction. And we say, okay, like we're right outside this, this zone, we're right outside this area, pop smoke again. Like, oh, we're out of smoke now. Like, great. So you guys are middle of the day in, in the Hellman province, like in the green zone, downtown, downtown Hellmond. Uh, it's the most dangerous spot for a helicopter be, to be flying low level, right? We are... <laughs> everyone's going to be taking pop shots at us. Everyone's going to be like, oh, well, these guys are nice and low. They're flying slow, looking for someone. Real easy target for me to just, you know, lob a rocket at or, you know, start lobbing some rounds at. It's a really dangerous spot for us to be at. So um, we, we tell them to find some alternate way to mark the, the landing zone. They say, okay, stand by. And they come back uh, about a minute later. Hey, we, we got an American flag and we found a big ass pole. Um, we put this American flag on this 30 foot pole and it's in the middle of a field. So uh, come to these coordinates and look for an American flag. And okay, so we're, we're buzzing low level. So we're flying at like 75 or 80 feet over the ground, pretty low that, you know, as you get lower, it maintains, uh, it doesn't highlight you so much. You know, if you're flying around at 400 feet, you have this much larger angle for a broader spectrum of people to see you and get a lead on you. So it's safer for us to stay lower to the ground um, while we're while we're doing our search. And right outside the left left hand side of the helicopter, I see it like, oh shit, American flag! Like, see it right there. We we break up and around and we land uh, right next to the American flag. Um, uh, PJs push out, and I, I come up to the door. Uh, we're manning the guns while our second helicopter kind of circles over us as a security element. Um, we load the the one seal on board. Uh, so he's in a litter. We get him on board. I'm trying to get him situated in the corner. And this is one of my very first interactions with seals and like the special operations, that side of the special operations community. Um, this dude had just been blown up like a few minutes prior. He's missing both of his legs. He's missing some fingers. And granted, like he's he's on on some some narcs. Uh, so I have my, my flight helmet. I have this, this dust cover mask, um, that my mom had painted for me. It's like a big samurai scowl. Um, so it's this like bright red mask. Um, it looks kind of cool, but as we're like loading him in the helicopter, he looks at me and goes, dude, that's 
fucking badass. <laughs> He's like, let me see that. I'm like, I'm sitting here like loading this guy in. Like, so you just got blown up. Like you're missing your legs like just a few minutes ago. And like, this is where your mind's at is you want to check this, this mask out. And I just, I had such a weird reaction to it. I'm like this guy's fucking crazy. Uh, and then I realized, oh, he's just on ketamine. Like that's, <laughs> that's ultimately what it is. It works. But I had the, yeah, yeah, I had this moment where I, I realized like that mindset is different. Like that is a different human being right there. And I had a lot of respect for for him acting like that. Uh, so we get him loaded in. I hand him my mask, and he's checking it out. And when they're walking, the uh, the Ansoff guy who's missing his face, we try to load him on board. Um, and we kind of get him situated in the back and he's still alive surprisingly, but, uh, you know, obviously he's, the bleeding has been kind of suppressed a little bit, but he's not doing well and his buddy wants to get on board with him, but we don't allow anyone who's not on the line line or actively injured and you're not an American, then no way you're not getting on board this helicopter, especially Afghanis at the time, um, because there were so many green on blue attacks and back and forth. And, you know, we just can't risk it unless you're butt naked, like, butt ass naked like not not a drop of clothing on you you're not getting on this helicopter i'm sorry it's just the way it is so he's trying to get on board i'm pushing him back and he like gets in my face a little bit and tries like push me aside so i i boot him in the chest a little bit like i, I shoo him away um and he, he gets the point uh we load the the pjs back up everyone's working and we transload the patients back but this whole event lasted maybe eight minutes total like it is just it's sheer terror and craziness and madness radios and communications are going crazy in your ear there's jammers on the ground so a lot of the radio channels that we have up are just loud buzzing you so you can't even hear the intercom systems we can't find our patients they mark the lz with a weird like with a flag instead of a smoke like there's just all these dynamic movements happening at one time and, you know, we're able to get the job done. And that's, that was the first time um, that I realized what, what rescue really was. It's, and this has always been my description of it is that it's a dynamic reaction to a dynamic environment, right? You have to be ready and on your feet and willing to shift and, 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 and learn on the fly for an environment that you're not prepared to enter. Like whatever they told you you're walking into, it's not, like just assume that they're they don't know assume that they're lying every time <laughs> like if they tell you it's safe it's not safe if they tell you the patient's secure he's not secure if they tell you he's he's stable he's not stable like go in thinking that they have just told you a load of shit and you'll be a lot more you know, you'll be a lot better prepared um because that's that's what we found ourselves in they told us where to go well they were wrong they told us what to expect again they were wrong um but being able to react to it appropriately and not just shut down just take the reaction okay uh flex you know figure out what's the alternative what's our contingency what's our emergency what's our tertiary figure it out get the job done and and save someone's life because that's at the end of the day that's what matters right save that person's life get back that's it um, so that was my, my first mission. <laughs> That's day one. Uh, and it, it got progressively you know crazier from there. We had some really, really wild missions. We had some really, really dark, dark missions. Um, ended up picking up a lot of kids over there, um, whether they were deceased already, whether you know, a lot of them stepped on IEDs. It was really prominent was with kids stepping on IEDs and if you want you want something to stick with you, that's that that's something that'll stick with you for a long time. Um we had some, it was just such an interesting, interesting experience. Um, 
that, you know, to this day, I'm thankful that I had a lot of it was really hard, really difficult. Um, and a lot of it stuck with me for a long time. Um, but, but, but ultimately, um, you know, I'm thankful for the experience overall. Um, but yeah, we had, we had a lot of crazy missions out there, dude. <laughs> it was a wild like time. It. it was a wild time. Yeah. Yeah. So the Iraqi command, excuse me, the Afghani commando with the, uh, had the horrendous face trauma. Did he end up surviving? Yeah. Um, so yeah, both the seal got transloaded right away. He got, um, exfilled from the country and then, yeah, the, the Afghani ended up surviving. Um, I only, we only followed up for about, uh, I don't know, a week or two maybe, but we had gotten him to the hospital. He had undergone his, his surgeries, um, and, and survived. But after that, that's, so that's the big disconnect with, um, the, the medical and rescue element in the military is <clears throat> you, you don't see your patients after like we, we get them to the hospital, we transload, we can follow up a little bit, but they're quickly out of country and we have to focus on the task at hand. We have to focus on the people we're saving, not the people we just saved. Um, so that's, that's a big disparage and that's a big disconnect of, uh, you know, following up that continuity, continuity of care. It's not necessarily our job anymore, but it's really nice to know what happens to those guys after we get them back. Like, did they make it? Did they live? Like, what what happened? Like, I'd like to know. Um, and that's, you know, we can get into this a little bit later, but that was more or less the premise of, of starting the Medivac podcast. And that's why uh, myself and David, why we started the Medivac podcast is to not only discuss what it's like to incur injuries like that, be on the rescue side, what it's like to live with an amputation, what it's like to receive an amputation, like What's that moment like when you step on an IED, right? But also the the big aspect of the podcast is reconnecting these people. So we have a few reconnection episodes where we we take the the rescue personnel with the injured personnel, and they haven't seen each other since that time. And we reconnect them in the same room. We get them to sit down and have a discussion with each other. A lot of times, like you want some heartstrings, like you, you want some tears, <laughs> like that. Those those moments are, are very emotional um, and 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 pretty beautiful at the same time. You know, it's to be completely frank, but um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, 2013 was a was a you know, interesting year. Yeah, full of surprises. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. There's so many parallels between your community and my community. One, for example, I'm sure most people listening can think of numerous calls where we've been dispatched to something and it was completely wrong. And like you said, we have to have the ability to shift. If you get focused in, oh, this is either A, going to be this extreme event or B, this is going to be bullshit. Because I wouldn't say that the modern fire service sits around waiting for the bell. They run thousands of pseudo bullshit calls. And then yeah. amongst those, we pepper true life, you know, life-threatening interventions so we have to remain you know vigilant through a lot of complacency because a lot of stuff that we run depending on where we work my last place we ran so much because we basically protected disney and they would call they would call us an alpha they wouldn't even say we want me to call you an ambulance they'd say you want us to call it an alpha unit I'm like uh yeah okay i guess and then we show <laughs> up and they're like why the hell are you here so we had a lot of that amongst the the true you know emergencies that would come Okay. One of the other parallels that it sounds like, um, when you go through training as a firefighter and a paramedic, you know, especially on the paramedic side, okay, if I do A, B, and C, then this patient will live. 
And then you get mm-hmm. out into the world, and I was an absolute fucking black cloud. If you got into cardiac arrest and I was your medic, you were going to die 100% of the time. And it's not a hope to God. It wasn't my terrible medic skills. It was just I had those those people, the the brain bleeds and the GI um, GI bleeds and all these things that you, there's just no way of navigating out. Yeah. So what I found was that my biggest weight was ultimately not so much, oh, an incident haunted me, but it was just that overall inability to save. And then that means a lot of grieving people are still alive when you just watch this person pass away despite all your efforts. I can imagine there'd be a parallel on the back of a helicopter, whether it's, you know, Afghani or Iraqi, you know, natives, or whether it's people that serve in the allied nations, that you just do everything you can and they still die. So if yeah. if there was that element, talk to me about that. I mean, we're taught all these things and they still end up passing away. Yeah, yeah, that, that happens uh, more more often than we want it to, right? Um, so, and that's that's the thing that I, I feel uh, I from from my my perspective and in the rescue community, it's the thing that weighs on people the most is are the people that we weren't able to save, right? You can still do you can do everything right, and at the end of the day, they they might just not make it. And that's something that we we found that happened quite a bit. Um, some of the more darker missions we flew on. Um, it involved that. So uh, we had one where an MC-12, which was a, a reconnaissance and communications aircraft. It's a small, small aircraft, um, uh, little twin engine uh, King Air that had crashed in Afghanistan in, in 2013. Um, so we got, we got the call to go out to that. Um, uh, and it was five service members uh, on board all Air Force, we had been working with them the entire deployment up to this point. So when we take off, um, this aircraft is flying at, at a few thousand feet higher than we are. Um, so they're a good relay, uh, uh, communications relay for us. So we're flying low level. Our radios aren't super powerful. So if we need to talk to someone who's far away, we talk up to them. It relays to the other person so we can get like a full, full view of the battlefield and understanding what's going on, get communications early. Well, these guys who we had been talking to the entire deployment, they were stationed a few tents over from us. Um, they, they crashed. And if you crash a fixed wing out there, like there's, there's no way you're going to, you're going to make it for the most part. So, um, we actually, we had to fly out and around one of the mountain ranges. Um, it was at a very high elevation. So when you're flying, uh, rotary wing helicopters in, uh, high altitude and hot environments, your ability to land is very limited. Your power limited, your engines can't create enough power. And the, you know, the effectiveness of your rotor blades is drastically reduced by the thin air and the, the, the hot, the hot air. Um, which means that if you have a lot of weight on board the helicopter, um, you can't, can't get in and land or you can't take off again. And the, the number one thing that is going to weigh us down is our armor and ammunition, which we ain't going to sacrifice and our fuel. So which, which do you go with? So we, we have to put ourselves in a very, very fuel limited position. Um, I'm, I'm talking like reserve limits on fuel. Like we need to take off and aerial, aerial refuel, or we're going to be landing right next to this thing. And now we're in enemy territory. So all these dynamic things happening at once while our friends just died or we've expected our friends have just died. So we fly out there, we land, um, as we're surveying the, um, the crash site, um, one of the wings is, is about two miles away from the rest of the, um, the impact area. So we, we realized that they had lost uh, a wing in flight. So they had overgrossed the aircraft, put it in a banking condition that 
uh, resulted in the wing box snapping. Um, so one of the wings went one way and the rest of the fuselage and airplane went the other way and just kind of spiraled into the ground. A horrible, horrible way to die, right? Um, so we, we, we get out there and uh, we're trying to recover the bodies, but as we're cut, we're probably 15 or 20 minutes out, we're getting um, relays from um, some of the recon that uh, the Taliban had actually entered the, the crash site. And they, what they would try to do is they would try to recover the skulls of, uh, of the service members. Um, so they would try to take the skulls as trophies and they would take those back. Um, so we're like, fuck that. We're getting out there right now. We're putting a stop to this. Um, we're able to intercept and get out there uh, quicker than the Taliban's able to approach. So we make our show of force. We enter, um, drop off the PJs and we stay on the ground and we have to recover remains um, and recovering service members remains um, from a fresh crash that happened, you know, 40 minutes prior, everything's still really hot. And, uh, so you're, you're piling, I don't know how, how graphic you like to get on the show, but you're piling basically hot, hot goo and bones, uh, into a body bag and, uh, you know, scraping a face off of, off the yoke of an aircraft, trying to put it in a body bag of people that we would talk to on the regular. Um, so we load up the, the body bags, get it, we're putting it on board and, we have to double bag it because the the bags are melting because the remains are so hot still. You know, it's it's just the realities of what it is. So we, we load these back up, um, uh, everything that we possibly can. We take off and we're at minimal minimal fuel conditions at this point, like totally illegal fuel conditions to to put ourselves in. And we're so power limited because we're flying at such a high altitude in this mountain range that we can't even. We don't have time to get up to a, a good altitude to refuel for the C-130s. Um, so the C-130 has to break, also break their rules. So they came down super, super low. Uh, we're, you know, aerial refueling at a couple of thousand feet at most. Um, and when you're in a high, hot environment in a, at low altitudes like that, but you get, you know, you get that heat that bumps off the ground. So you have super bumpy air. We're trying to put a small probe into a small drogue so we can get some fuel. We're bouncing all over the place and it's really coming down to the wire. We're able to just squeak it in. Um, we're able to take on just a little bit of fuel. We get out of that range back down to some lower altitudes, refuel again. And then we head back and, and we land and, and we offload. Um, so we, we, landed back at that unit. So we didn't go to the hospital. We landed back to the unit of uh, the men and women who had, who had died on that aircraft. Um, and we transload their, their remains to, uh, back to their, their unit. So these guys came out and there's a, a full formal process, you know, um, it's, it's kind of a military, uh, military tradition or, um, just a respectful process of transferring the remains, making sure that they're covered with a flag, Everything is appropriately uh, transloaded and handed off, um, and it was it was a heavy moment. Um, it was a really heavy time, um, and that's something that that stuck um, stuck with me. And through the podcast, uh, through our our podcast, the Medivac podcast, I told this story once, and uh, a buddy of mine knew the mother of one of the guys that we picked up, um, and and put me in touch with her. Um, which was interesting. You know, she, she was, she said, thank you. And, um, you know, she told me a little bit about, about her son. Um, and it was, it was nice to get to know, um, that the family got some closure from that, from receiving the remains back. And that, that mission that we went on wasn't, you know, it's not for nothing. It's, it's to provide closure for these families and, and to learn more about them later. It's, it's a pretty special feeling. 
Um, yeah, and the uh, the one that really stuck with me the longest though was uh, was picking up a, a brother, two, two brothers, um, Afghani Afghani boys. They were about seven and nine years old. They were out playing soccer and uh, they stepped on an IED. Um, and going out to pick up, um, you know, children, small children, going out to pick up small children who had their legs blown off, um, and, and one was missing an arm, um, load them into the helicopter. And while, while they're being worked on, um, the, the younger one died. Um, so they're both in the same helicopter. I'm, I'm on board the, they're, they're being worked on and the, the younger one passed away. Um, and the look on the older one's face when he realized that his younger brother died like that did probably one of the heaviest moments of, of, of my life. And, um, you know, that, that stuck with me, um, just that, that understanding that he had, it's loud. He's confused. Like the last 20 minutes have just been pure chaos for him. And he gets a moment of clarity to realize that his younger brother just died. And that's, it's heavy, man. It's heavy to, to, to do that to drop them off at the hospital and then boom, another call, go do it again. And, you know, boom, another call, go do it again, go do it again. So no, no time to decompress, no time to, to focus and to process what happens, just compartmentalize, you know, keep it objective. We, we did everything we possibly could. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't, it just doesn't work out that way. Um, and we can get into like processing trauma and stuff like that a little bit later, but that was the one that was a, a big moment for me that really stuck with me. And that, that, like that, that moment, like I went home at the end of that shift and, and I, I sat down like, man, like, I don't know if this is for me. <laughs> like, I don't know if I can see that. How many more times can I see that? How many more times can I deal with that? Or like, is this my fault? Is this something, did I train to the standard that I needed to be at? Was it, am I being, um, you know, am I being objective with my team to make sure that they're, they're at the standard they need to be at too? Like, is everyone operating at the proper standard? Are we, are we taking the proper steps and training ourselves to be able to uh, actually save lives? Like, is this our fault? And it's, that's that you can quickly find yourself spiraling and, and searching for blame in, in, in a blameless situation, right? There's nobody to blame on the rescue side of this. Like it's nothing we did that resulted in the death of those people. To, it's the result of a bomb maker placing a bomb, right? That's the ultimate result, but that's what, what rescue personnel and that's what first responders, those are the questions we find ourselves dealing with. And I'm sure you can attest to this as well, that it takes maturity and it takes, it can sometimes take years uh, before that realization comes that, yeah, it, it's not, it's not our fault and we, we can't blame ourselves, but we do because that's, that's part of the humility that comes with it. That's part of the responsibility that we bear on ourselves. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, I think the, the, the other thing that I think is, is really important. There should be an ownership of skills and fitness and ability regardless. Like you said, if you truly understand why you wear this uniform, that should be paramount every time you walk through the doors of the, you know, the air force base or the, the fire station or wherever. But another additional reason why to train your fucking ass off is when you lose someone and you mm. know in your heart or your hearts, your heart of hearts, that you did everything you could to prepare for that moment. I think there's a healing element. There's an ability to kind of, you know, process that. But if you know damn well that you spent the last five years of your career sitting in the Lazy Boy watching Jerry Springer reruns between calls, and then mm -hmm. you don't get up to that 
floor where that person was burning to death or you fuck up your drug calculations or you don't tie that belay rope properly and someone plunges to their death you're gonna have a really hard problem ever ever forgiving yourself if you truly care there's some people don't give a fuck anyway and they should never be in the profession in the first place but you know i think the middle ground where that complacency starts to sink in that's a reminder if someone died how would i feel if i knew in my heart of hearts that i hadn't done everything to prepare for that moment yeah, like how how do you respond to that when 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 it comes down to this could be my fault? Ooh, that's now that's where it really gets heavy. That's where you find yourself, man. Like, what what do you do after that? So, you know, if if you're listening to, to this and you find yourself in that position, take the right steps. You know, make the right choices. And if it's not for you, then you know, do do the right thing for other people and and step down. Right. That those are your two options: are are step up. And operate at a hundred percent. Put put yourself in, in that in that position, that other person's position. Like, who do you want coming to save you? Is it is it your lazy ass right now, or is it the person who's who's you know putting in the work? Is it the person who's training appropriately, studying appropriately, preparing themselves physically? Like, that's that's who I want to come to save me, and that's what I would expect. I wouldn't expect anything less. Absolutely. There's, there's you know, would you want you sa- saving you? Which I think is a very powerful thing. I frame it even a little differently. How would you feel if your family died because the rescuer hadn't trained? Now put yourself in that position. I think to me, because we're in a selfless profession. So when you say, oh, would you want you rescuing you? Well, I'm not worried about being rescued so much. I'm trying to be the rescuer. But my family, my sons, my wife, my dog, that Mm -hmm. is really what's going to, you know, remind me of what's most important in my world. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's a great way to frame it too, I think. I like that. I'm not in that profession anymore, so I, I don't have those questions come up too often anymore. But yeah, it's, I think it's a, a phenomenal way to frame that. And it, it does give some some deeper perspective too, because like you said, we're selfless. We're willing to die anyways, right? I'm, I'm willing to die for other people. That's, that's uh, so are you. Anyone in this position is. Um, so yeah, reframing it like that can can carry a little bit more weight, I think. Absolutely. Well, one other parallel when you talk about these horrendous uh, calls that you've had. And I think it's so important. I want to thank you again for relaying these stories because I know there's an element that, you know, of, of reliving them as well. But I think there's so much power, not only for people listening that are in these kind of professions that understand, but also like I've got a, a little boy who's 15. He's in the JROTC program at school and he's really enjoying okay. it. We have a responsibility to make sure that our boys and girls that are going into the military understand truly what might happen when they do that i mean god forbid you know you're being decapitated on national television people don't want to hear that that's not in the recruiting videos but that's a reality of what might happen but also a reminder when people in suits and government buildings start postulating and you know poking the bear and sending our children off to war that we need to as a nation understand that this needs to be an absolute fucking last resort to send our kids off to kill because yeah. the ripple effect that is sadly suppressed a lot of times is is barely seen on these two extreme news channels that we have. The reality is the middle. And that's what is so powerful about stories that you told is this gives us a, a boots on the ground vision of what war is truly like. And I want to ask you the, the, a positive side in a moment, but we need to hear this raw, shitty, horrible side as well, because otherwise we're too immersed in Tiger King to actually pay attention to what's happening thousands of miles away in another country. Yeah. And it, it, I think it, 
it can also come down to empathy overload too, right? When we when we are being inundated with, uh, you know, like you said, the news channels that just force feed all the negative shit down our throats. This is what you need to care about. This is what you need to care about. Now it's the next thing. Now care about it just as much. People start to get uh, what I call empathy overload. Like, okay, yeah, like uh, a whole school bus uh, just crashed and. Like, how am I supposed to feel about it when there's another school bus that crashed t- tomorrow and the following day and the, the next day? People start to, to not respond the same way when there's always constant negative things being being spoken about. Um, and I, really, I really wish they would start peppering some positive stories into these, these news channels for that reason. Like, it's important to care about the, the bad things that are happening in our society, but it's also really important to relish the positive things that are going on. Right, we have to stop and take those those aspects in, and and to you know, really relish them and and sit with them because it's important for gauging our perspective of the world, um, both with a rea- realistic view and a hopeful view. Right, I I can tell you about the horrors of war, and there's a lot of people who can tell you much much worse stories and things that they've endured, but is that the reality of the entire world all the time? No, it's not. There's a lot of fantastic things that happen in this world. There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful people that we get to work with that aren't advertised or displayed um, the same way that, that all this negative bullshit is, is pushed down our throats. And it's something uh, I, we talk about on our podcast a lot, something I've brought up quite a few times. I call it the totality of life experience, right? It's really important if you, if say we live between a one and a 10, right? A 10 is the best possible day you could ever have. And a one is the worst possible day you can ever have. I'd say a majority of Americans live between like a four and a six. Like their worst day is like, ah, the internet's fucking slow today. <laughs> like, is that, is that the worst thing that you've had to endure this month? Like, I'm so sorry. That's the worst thing you've had to endure this month. But the most positive thing is like, oh, I went drinking, I would drink it with my buddies. Like, okay, cool. Like, that's a six and what the military and what uh, being a public public servant um, anything anything in these positions it really opens up your your perspective and your view you get those days that are that are you know twos and ones and zeros like when you have when you have dead children that's a one dude that that puts reality in perspective when or like if it's, if your child dies you know god forbid like that is a one that's going to change your entire perspective. But what does it do? It makes that those sevens and eights, those positive days. Now you get to, you get to relish those that much more. You get this larger perspective and this larger view um, and this bigger respect for, for life and what it is. Um, you know, I, I hear this saying all the time, you know, uh, men have two lives and the, the second one starts when you realize you only have one, right? So when you, when you get put in that position that forces you to realize you're mortal or, Others are mortal where your time is limited, where your friends and your family's time is truly limited. We don't know when it's going to be be up. Like you have to relish those moments and really take those in and, and sit with them. Um, and not just like not, not just shove them off on the side and and you know, continue to push for that negative perspective that the the news cycles, unfortunately. They, they don't agree, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, they agree perfectly. I mean, they do exactly the same damn thing. They talk about each other like the other one is the devil, but you look, they basically divide the screen into four, get four douche lords arguing with each other, and they call that news. That's yeah, not fucking talk- news. Yeah. The talking heads, yeah. So, well, you kind of pointed to the other side of the question. So, you, you let in beautifully to what i would ask you anyway which was um and i wear a preface is this we do get a very polarized view of war 
and you know either god let god sell them, uh, excuse me kill them all let god sort them out or they're all baby killers and then the middle is people like yourself that actually story tells something that i will never know because i was a firefighter not in the military um and then so i always say well were there some some moments where you realize regardless of the politics you know you you saw some some horrors that needed to be addressed and you've sure. told numerous stories that fit that bill but just as importantly and as you alluded to there's two parts to this question each time the other side is exactly what you said during your deployments amid some of these combat zones were there moments of kindness and compassion that you remember you know that really resonated with you yeah abs absolutely um well those are and i don't i don't like to negative filter or or you know say that it was all all bad but those moments were a lot more uh, few and far between unfortunately um but usually when people were calling us it's because they were having a really really bad day right um people people usually call the cops or the firefighters first and if if we usually you know, tell people that if you're seeing me, it's the worst day of your life. Um, so ultimately, those days were were fewer and far between. But um, yeah, we, we definitely had some where we we were able to save people in time, where they would have actively died um, if we did not intervene at those moments. Um, a few of those uh, are those are more on the civilian rescue side, I would say. Um, so I flew in, up in Alaska quite a bit. Um, there's an Air Force uh, Guard rescue unit out there. When they were deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq, they would have um, people from other units go up to Alaska and backfill their their alert. Um, they have a 24-hour, seven-day alert cycle um, where they're flying rescue every single day, 24 hours a day, um, because a lot of shit happens in Alaska. People, uh, people will just grab an airplane and go fly it without a pilot's license or without properly maintaining the airplane for months at a time. Or yeah, I, I can, I can figure out how to, you know, kayak down the, this, this river for, you know, a 10 day excursion and people make really dumb decisions up in Alaska without having the proper experience. But um, there was a, there was a couple that we flew up there that were really challenging missions. Um, but if we did not intervene at, at those moments, like it was, certain that that those individuals would have died um one of which uh, it's kind of a funny story um it was the longest rescue i ever i've ever flown and i think it's one of the longest rescues uh, that's like in in air force rescue history it was a little over 15 hours um so we uh were in northern alaska and we had to fly about six hours north so super super far we're flying out of fairbanks so we're basically dead center of alaska anyways and going six hours further north um, we had to take off at like two in the morning. We get, we get a call, um, on the way out there, six hours in a helicopter gets really boring, especially under NVGs. It's, you know, looking through toilet paper tubes that are green. Um, actually a kind of a cool experience. It was the first time I saw the Northern lights. Um, so while we're out there, like headed out to pick someone up, I see like the big wisps and everything. That's kind of cool. You know, kind of a beautiful moment before we pick this guy up, um, we and Phil, this guy's out hunting with a group of people, but he has extreme Crohn's disease and uh, ultra, ultra inflamed uh, gut. So uh, we, we hoist him up into the helicopter and get his shirt up. And it looks like there's a softball sewn underneath his skin. He's got this massive inflammation there and he's like writhing in pain, this, this poor guy. Um, so one of the J's pushes ketamine and like <laughs> he goes from writhing in pain and just, oh, to immediately like he's, his whole body drops and he's just kind of like staring around the helicopter. I can see him mouthing. He's like, why, why, why? <laughs> did, did he look at your cool mask and be like, bro, can I see that? 
<laughs> I, he had no idea where he was. <laughs> he was a, he was off in uh, ketamine la la land. Um, so he was he was having a good time. But uh, yeah, we were able to get him transloaded back back to the uh, back to the hospital in time, and he had you know just just a couple of hours left before um, they said his uh, you know his intestines would have ruptured and that would have been it. Like he would have been septic, and there's there's no cleaning that out after. Um, especially in an austere environment like that, when you're 15 hours from anywhere in Alaska with no emergency medicine anywhere near you, like that's, it's a death sentence. Um, so I got to fly quite a few rescues up in Alaska where we, you know, we got to make, um, we got to make a big difference in somebody's life at, at a moment that there's no way they would have made it. Um, and that, uh, it, it was nice. It was nice to have those moments where we know like, oh, we intervened at the the right time. Like it was correct for us to show up today. Um, and we, it's good to relish in those moments too, that yes, we, we did train correctly. Yeah. We, we executed correctly and, and to be proud of those moments too. Um, yeah, I think is all, also important. Um, but you know, like I said, those moments were you know, fewer far between, um, those, those happy moments. Beautiful. Well, you've obviously walked us through some some highs and some crushing lows as well. I want to get to your mental health story, but just before we do, you kind of touched on on a, a startling figure of the the men and women in your community that you lost to suicide. So, if if you wouldn't mind, walk me through your mental health journey and, and your transition out. But what were you seeing also around you during that kind of uh, de- you know deployment cycles that you were going through? Yeah. So. Um... So I started around 2017, 2018, I started realizing this was after, after three combat deployments. Um, my second one was kind of nil, nothing too crazy. My third one, we had a few really good missions. Um, but we, we ended up losing a guy that we were stationed with, um, one of the green berets that we were on, on target with got killed. We had to recover him. Um, and after, you know, consecutive over done over 300 rescues, you know, hundreds of combat missions, um, yeah, you know, a, a significant amount of people, and I never stopped to try to process any of the stuff that I had seen or endured or partaken in. Um, you know, whether that's saving people or losing people or killing people or, or whatever it was, um, I never stopped to actually process it. I just kind of lived with it, and I didn't, I didn't address it one way or the other. I wasn't outright ignoring it, um, but I didn't take time to address it. And I really found um, myself kind of spiraling. I was drinking a whole lot more. I was I was angry a lot. I was wildly depressed, um, self isolating, um, and then you know trying to cope with uh, with negative coping mechanisms primarily by by drinking and and avoidance. Right. So the the classic symptoms that uh, you know put put the bow tie on for for you know your own funeral at, at some point. And I realized that a lot of the symptoms I was dealing with, and a lot of my um, um, a lot of my emotions and my my outbursts, or or just uh, the way that I was feeling generally, was very akin to what I saw in in a few of my friends who ended up taking their lives. Um, and over the course of, of my military career, over the course of you know a little over twelve years, had fifteen of my friends commit suicide. Um, uh, quite a few of those were primarily in the air force rescue side. Um, but a few peppered throughout who all had associating symptoms, who also had, um, associating stories. Like I, I could see the dots. I could see the clear path to, yep, 
they just skipped every step. They hit every stone on the way and like, you can see it, how it plays out. Um, and I, I, I kind of got a moment of clarity. Like, I think that's the direction that I'm heading and that's not the direction that I want to head. Um, and I, I even saw it in, in like in my own unit. Like I, I saw, I saw guys in my unit who I was really worried about for, you know, the, the last couple of years, especially like I, I saw the direction they were heading I'm like, man, like I, and I want to interject. I want to help these people, but I don't know how. Um, but I needed to help myself first, right? So around uh, it was around the end of 2018, um, I got I got to a point where like I realized that that like I'm I'm going to kill myself eventually, and that's not what I want to do. Um, that's not the direction I want to head. So I raised my hand. And I you know I started seeking therapy. Um, so I went to the VA and said, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to seek some therapy and, and just talk to somebody to see if I can process some of this stuff. Um, and I try not to tell the air force right away. So I went to the VA because the two systems don't necessarily speak. So I thought I could get around it and like not lose my, my operational status. Right. Um, cause as soon as you raise your hand uh, as an operator or an aviator or wh whatever you are, whatever type of, um, whatever type of rating you have, as soon as you raise your hand, that's it, you're done. Um, and that's not just you're, you're done for a while. It's usually you're, you're done for good. And I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to see if I could like work through it without highlighting myself. And I realized that my issues were, were quite a bit deeper than, than I had initially thought. And that it wasn't just going to be a couple of weeks of talking to someone and everything, you know, life's better. Like, Oh, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. I've had years of work ahead of me. Um, and I, I really need to make a decision for myself. <clears throat> do I do I chance it um, and try to continue operating in this in this operational tempo that we've been doing, whether it's you know civil rescue, getting ready for deployments, while I'm trying to balance my own mental health? Um, and that comes down to the question of: Am I fit to do that? Am I fit to save somebody else's life? Am I putting my team at risk? Right? Am I putting the rest of this aircraft at risk or these other operators at risk? And that's, that's what it came down to. So I, I, I made it, made it clear with, uh, you know, our flight surgeon, like, Hey, I'm, I'm seeking therapy right now. She goes, okay, well that's you know, ultimately, and that's, that's what happens. Like, okay, well, no more wings, no more operations. You're not flying anymore. You're, you're on desk duty. Um, which is something that was as a big ego hit. Right. Um, and that's something that I didn't know how to process either is my identity was linked to rescue. I went from high school to Air Force Combat Rescue, like the 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 ultimate pinnacle of of saving lives and and whatever you want to call it, that's what my identity was. Like I didn't have anything else, so I realized quickly that I am losing myself and I'm losing my friends, and I don't. I feel even more lost now. So that initial hit was was really difficult, and not to mention when when you are in an operational unit like that, and if you go if you go down for a reason, like if, if you're not flying or if you're not operating anymore, people ask why, right? And is, is it any of their business? No, not necessarily. But if they know that, well, he's, his back isn't broken, his leg's not broken, he's not going to physical therapy, like it must be something else. So immediately, and people don't necessarily want to address those things. People are, are typically, and I found this in, in, to be true for myself, uh, in, in, in my unit, people weren't willing to, to discuss mental health issues or struggles. Um, they didn't want to, uh, if you brought it up, it was, it was laughed at or a joke or, 
you know, oh, you got PTSD from that fucking pussy. Like that, that is more or less, you know, the response and, and the, the feeling of being ostracized in conjunction with like trying to, you know, uh, take care of myself. That was, that was a big hit. Um, and it almost made it far worse. Um, and that's, that's something that I, I've since seen more, more people in the leadership uh, spectrum and a leadership asset, uh, take these things a little bit more seriously. And, you know, if guys are struggling and they're raising their hands, it's for, it's for a reason. And thankfully they're, they're being a little bit more open to that now. But when I was, when I was going through it, it, it definitely did not feel like that. It felt like the opposite. So I, I started attending therapy and I, I quickly found that, oh, there, these processes work. And it's not, you know, a lot of people have a mis, mis, uh, misguided conception of what therapy is. They think you're going to go and lay, lay down on a couch and talk to somebody and cry about your emotions. And that's it. It's, it's not the case at all. My, my entire first year of attending therapy, I went once a week with the VA entire first year, all I did was learn how to process things, learn, I, I learned new tools, uh, new skill sets, um, and, and tools to navigate my emotions, to understand my emotions, to realize that, oh, when I have a, an emotion that doesn't fit the scenario that I'm in, like if I'm sitting in traffic and I get outrageously angry, that, that doesn't, that's a disconnect, right? There is something broken there. So learning how to understand that and not just like, okay, I'm angry now. So fuck it. I'm angry. No, like question it. Why are you angry? Like try to unpack that a little bit. Is this, is it appropriate to be this angry or this upset for the situation that you find yourself in? And when I realized that that's what therapy was, was learning how to manage and learning how to cope and, and learning how to process uh, the, these traumas or experiences or your reactions or your emotions or whatever it is, then I, I started diving in really deep. Like I, like, okay, there's something here, like I can fix this and maybe I can, I can learn what can truly fix this and, and assist other people. Cause ultimately that's, that's all, all I really cared about at the end of the day. I wanted to help myself, but I saw more of my friends going down that same path and like, there's gotta be a better way. There has got to be options and opportunities for these people um, because they're not taking, uh, they're not taking it seriously or they're not um, investigating the opportunities that are open to them. A lot of them aren't attending therapy. And if you mention it to them, I mean, they'll, <laughs> they'll call you names, they'll call you a fucking idiot, whatever it is, you know? Um, and that, that's one thing that I wanted to start to change for people um, is having open conversations about what I was experiencing, what I was learning, how I was coping um, and how it was effective for me. And so I, I dove in deep with the, the VA and pretty much everything that they had to offer, every sort of, uh, they had a full PTSD clinical team in the Bay Area where I was at. So they had a whole floor dedicated at this, this uh, VA hospital dedicated to um, every different type of therapy you could possibly want to attend, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, um, specifically for PTSD or for insomnia or acceptance and commitment therapy, art therapies, you, you name it. Like I went through every single one to see what it had to offer, to see if there was any benefit to me. Um, even if it didn't sound interesting or applicable to me, I gave it a shot and I did the work. So when you attend it, you don't just show up once a week and like you talk about shit and then you, you don't think about it until the following week or three weeks or a month or whatever it is. You get homework in between, you get assignments, you have to you know keep logs and track data. And I put in the work and I, I quickly realized that the amount of work that you put in is the amount of work that you get out. So I, I dove in deep. So from 2018 
um, up until I, I ended up uh, retiring in 2021, um, I was attending every sort of therapy and alternative modality I could possibly find. So uh, through that, through those you know three or so years, I did the stellate ganglion block. So I went out to Maryland to do that with um, Dr. Sean uh, Mulvaney. He's the former Navy SEAL who popularized the stellate ganglion blocks, which is supposed to reduce the fight or flight response. So it's just a, it's a long-term anesthetic that they put and like the C3, C4 section, it reduces the fight or flight response uh, quite a bit. Um, I, I attended that. Uh, I've done the hyperbaric uh, hyperbaric um, therapy as well as transcranial magnetic stimulation. I was one of the first um, ketamine therapy recipients that the VA did. Um, they've since changed the way that they do it, and it seems to be much more effective now. But in my in my search for like finding solace, I guess, or, or finding um, how to truly fix myself, none of these things ultimately worked. Um, and and I, I hate to say that, like, I, I hate to tout that, that it, you know, therapy is great and like, it, it's all this stuff, but none of it works for me. It's, it's not the case. I learned so much and it was so beneficial, but I still found myself having these bouts and these moments of like, just sheer depression or, or sheer anger, or just feeling lost or lonely or, or whatever it is and not being grateful for, for the things that are in front of me. You know, I was you know, always focused on what's next and what's ahead. Um, and it wasn't until somebody was uh, a friend of mine said, Hey, do you want to try some psychedelics and see what happens? Uh, you know, after I got out of the military, um, he said he had very positive benefits, um, with, uh, with, uh, with five MEO DMT, which is one of the most powerful psychedelics in the world, or I think it's like the most potent in the world. Um, there is no recreational aspect to, to this. It is very <laughs> much a medicine. So when people like talk psychedelics, they're like, Oh, mushrooms or LSD, you're going to go have some fun and like laugh with the trees and like roll around in the grass. Like, no, this one you're, you're meeting fucking God and he's setting your shit straight and you come back 10 minutes later and you don't know what just happened, but, uh, that, that experience and being open to that experience combined with all of the tools and the skills that I learned in therapy and, and everything else that I had done in those preceding years. When I got up to that point and I tried the, the five MEO DMT, um, it, it changed me it, it, in a matter of moments. So it's like a little vaporizer pen you take a hit it lasts about 10 minutes <clears throat> and this is all but it's fully sanctioned it's it's done at medical facilities you know it's 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 on the up and up it's not just in somebody's backyard so anybody listening to this don't just do it in somebody's backyard like by god please don't like there it's it's dangerous in, in some aspects or it can be if you're mixing it with certain substances so make sure you're doing it under a supervisory of an md at a sanctioned facility please by god but um yeah, it, it, it lasted about 10 minutes. Um, I, 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 I took a hit of it. Um, I, I left my body for about 10 minutes. You know, I went off into wherever it takes you. It, it, it more or less is the, the feeling of death and being, uh, reabsorbed by all of the energy of life. And you feel like you've be, you've gone from being an individual and yourself to, um, to returning to everything. It feels like you're a drop of water falling and then you land in a bucket and like that drop of water doesn't exist anymore. You're, you're with the, the bucket of water. Um, and that, that feeling is a uh, pure bliss and loving and joyous and understanding and accepting experience 
and you kind of flutter your eyes about 10 minutes later and you, you wake up and whatever, whatever you were dealing with, um, or struggling with when you return, it's kept it. So on the other side, like it has pushed you through a fine mesh filter and it has kept all that negativity and all that, uh, that trauma, the depression, anxiety, whatever it is, <clears throat> these negative uh, attributes and emotions that we struggle to deal with. Um, it's like having 30 years of therapy in, in 10 minutes. And I woke up and I, I just remember crying. Like I cried for about 30 minutes, just laying there. Um, my buddy, you know, he was, he's vulnerable enough and, and open enough to like, just sit there with me while I, while I cried. And I, I don't, I think the last time I had cried before that I was, I was probably a preteen. Like I was probably like 10 years old, 12 years old. Like the last time I had actually cried and like having that realization, like, Oh shit. Like, even though I've done all this therapy and I've done, I've taken all these steps, like I'm still closed off. I'm still cold. I'm still, I'm still not vulnerable with people. I'm not willing to be open. And this like, you know, to, to, I don't want to put it like too, too uh, uh, awkwardly, but it, it force fucked my mind into like, Hey, this is where you're fucking up, dude. Like your therapist wouldn't tell you this, or you, you just don't want to realize it, but this is your issue but it removes the ego from the self at the same time. So when you're looking at it, it's not detrimental. It's like, it's not being down on you. It's just showing you like, this is, this is your issue. Like, why, why don't you change this? And since your ego is removed from yourself during this experience, you realize, oh, I just have to make these changes and I can you know, have this better outcome of my life. I can have better outcome of emotions. I can have better relationships with my friends and my families and my loved ones. And I woke up and I realized that, um, like these are these are the areas that I was struggling in. These were the areas that I'm I'm resistant against. Resistance against gratitude. I'm resistance against you know being loved or loving other people or being vulnerable with my friends. And you know when it comes down to it, like if your friend tells you that they're struggling with something or they're they're you know ready to commit suicide or whatever it is, and and you can't you can't resonate with that or you can't have a, a proper emotional reaction to help walk them through that. Like it's a bad, bad position to be in. And that's what I realized that, man, if, if my friend had approached me and, and said something like that, my, my reaction before would have been that that's really harsh. Like that, like, how can I help you? But I wouldn't resonate with it truly. Like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't let them in still. And like, even at the most, the most critical point that you would want to be there for someone, I found that I had walls still. Um, and that it broke them down, dude. Like it broke them down. <laughs> um, and, and since then, like uh, I find, I find that psychedelics in the proper setting and the proper use with the proper tool sets beforehand are the most powerful tool in, in, in repairing uh, the human connection, repairing our emotional status and, uh, repairing us in a whole human concept. Um, I felt better physically. I felt better mentally. And since then I've, I've gone on to experience a multitude of different, uh, psychedelic experiences, um, you know, for, for medical use primarily, uh, you know, I, like, like I said before, I wanted to make myself a Guinea pig. I wanted to see <laughs> what I, if, if I put things in my body, like how can it affect me in a positive way? And like, what are the things that we need to, uh, we need to do uh, because no one's doing the studies. No one was, no one was being vocal about it either. <clears throat> People were, were doing this for 
for years beforehand, but no one knew about it. People were using mushrooms and LSD and, and DMT uh, and ayahuasca and all these other different uh, modalities uh, to cure their mental health issues. And no one was being vocal about it, which was such a disservice. Like, I understand you have to be protective, but it was such a disservice to everyone who ultimately ended up taking their lives because since then I've seen people who were ready and willing to kill themselves and, and prepared to do so, but they took a chance on, on one of these medicines and it changed them. And it truly changed who they were as a person and it changed their understanding of life and death and relationships. And I've seen people, I, I attended one with a guy who said he was, he was, he was going to kill himself that week. He's like, listen, I'm going to kill myself this week. And like, dude, like, try this. It's going to change. It's going to help you. And he went through it. He woke up uh, you know, after a 10 minute session and he, he looked, <laughs> he looked around and, and I remember like sitting with him. Um, uh, he was a different person. He, he cried. Like he had, he had a true, like a joyful cry. And he, he, he said, I, I didn't think I could feel like this again. I didn't think it was possible to have these emotions again, I didn't even know that they existed in me. He's like, I remember feeling like this as a child and it died so long ago, I forgot it even existed. He's like, I don't know what this feeling is right now, but I love it and I, I, I don't want to lose this now. And like, if that's not enough data to convince somebody that, that these things work and it is worth pursuing, it's worth studying, it's worth taking a chance and it's scary as fuck. It's so fucking scary to do, to like be put up against your own mind uh, in in like an un, unfiltered, ultra magnified, you know, crazy, crazy experience to go up against yourself like that, the darkest, deepest parts of you. It, it takes it takes some courage to do that. But my God, it, it is it worth it, dude. Like it is absolutely worth it. And I've only seen major, major uh, the positive benefits. Um, through my experiences, even if the experiences are negative. Um, and that's, uh, I'm, it's something I'm very passionate about. And I think it's truly the answer and the key um, to unlocking uh, the, the, the cure uh, and the, you know, at least, at least setting people up for success to start processing their traumas or their negative feelings, uh, navigating their emotions. And, and there's a lot of organizations that are standing up now a lot of nonprofits like vets, uh, veterans exploring treatment solutions uh, with you know Marcus and Amber Capone, um, their their organization. I I attended one of their retreats um, just this last October to do the the ibogaine and the five meo DMT experience, and yet again like blew my fucking mind. I had very unique experience there, <clears throat> um, and it a very, very unique experience, but it, it, again, like it gave me what I needed, um, to experience, uh, and it helped me to continue to put things in perspective. Um, and for anybody struggling, like if, if you're at your wits end, hit up vets, like go, go take a chance. I promise. Even if it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not a fix all. It's not a magic pill, but it will give you a different perspective. It will change your outlook and your view on, on these things. And it will open the door to allow you to be accepting of the change that you need to make for sure. 
that's I could talk about psychedelics all day long. <laughs> well, it's so good to hear though, because you know, as you said, there are all these different modalities, and I think one of the the truths of all this is that people need to understand the expanse of the toolbox that's available to them. And sadly, some of the most powerful mediums are also labeled illegal. So I've yeah. talked about this irony a lot on the show. You know, I mean, firstly, I, my whole thing on drug prohibition is a whole separate thing, but I think it's a complete fucking disaster in, in itself. But another compounding layer of the argument against sending addicts to prison is the men and women that serve our country have to go overseas to get the very therapy to deal with their mental health issues that they accrued through their service. So, right. you know, the, the, the more of these stories that I hear, obviously, I had Marcus on the show. I've had numerous SEALs, Dan Cirillo, um, Nick Norris. I mean, all these different people that have gone through, um, you know, Ibogaine specifically. And you've got the psilocybin. You've got uh, 5-AMU-DMT, all these different things that are working that in itself are not the magic bullet. Like you said, it's having the capacity to do the work and then being given the key to the lock. Because yeah. so many of us, and the way you, your friend, you described what your friend said, what is our baseline? We get to the other end of our career and, and you know, we've got, like you said, organizational stress, childhood trauma, sleep deprivation, um, you know, relationship problems and all these compounding elements. We don't know what we're even supposed to feel anymore. We have no capacity of what's normal. So I look at this as almost a reboot. And as we talked before I hit record, I've been offered a retreat that ironically is the same time as 7X. So I don't think I can go, but I'm going to take someone up on one of these very, very soon because I don't feel like I'm struggling specifically, but I don't think I'm optimal. I really don't. As of course, I mean, how can I not have had, you know, the 14-year fire service career and some childhood trauma and not have a negative effect somewhat? Am I putting a gun in my mouth every night? Absolutely not. Am I drinking myself into oblivion? Also no. But if I'm operating like this with no help, what can I operate at, you know, if... Uh, if I have 100% of my capacity opened up. And even creatively, I'm trying to write a book. I've got an idea even for a documentary now. Okay. What is being suppressed on the creative side that might be opened up again? So, I mean, it's so sad that the very thing that I hear so many people having success about, or with, should I say, is also so stigmatized. And yet the things that are socially accepted, you know, like alcohol and some of the some even some of the the treatment options have a role as you said but no one has come on here saying i did cbt and it was it, it changed my life now mm -hmm. now yeah. you know i did the emdr and that was it that's all i needed you know no yeah. that you need to have these toolboxes and whether it's mdma lead therapy ketamine psilocybin some of the other ones we've talked about um these are a part of the toolbox that has been locked for so many fucking years and then the other thing i think that was very powerful that you said when one of us is healed, that gives us the capacity to be vulnerable that then in turn is going to save other lives. But if we believe in this men don't cry, rub some dirt in it bullshit, not only are we spiraling downwards, but we're missing everyone around us who's hurting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that 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 reaction right there, what you just said, is what, what I see far too commonly. And uh, granted, people are, are really coming around now. People are over the last year and a half or so, it seems like the entire world, like this world that we're kind of looped up in, you know, public service and military and veterans, it is primarily men. You know, it, it's statistically, it's what, 95%, 94% men. 
what I've seen a big shift in people saying that, like it used to be, yeah, don't be a bitch, like get over it. And that's, that's what it has come down to. But over the last year and a half, I've seen a massive change. Um, it's, we still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go, but people are being more open and, and more interested in exploring that other side. And that's, that's one thing, another topic that, that we talk about all the time is like, what, what is the mark of a man? Like when you're no longer in one of these service elements, if you're not a green brayer anymore, do you think your wife and kids care how fast your draw time is? No. Like, do, does your, what your, does your wife and kids care what your fucking deadlift is? Like, is that, is that a mark of being like a, a, a strong leader and, and, and uh, a positive role model as a man? No, it is an aspect of your individuality and an aspect of what you might consider to be a man. But you know what's even more important is uh, for your kid to come up to you and say, hey, dad, you make me feel safe when I'm around you. Right. Do you think that's because you have a good draw time and you carry a gun? The kid doesn't understand that. That's an emotional thing. Right. It's your deadlift. Yeah, it's, it's your deadlift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that 405 deadlift. Yeah. No, no and that's, that's what it comes down to. Like it. How, how do you want your, your family to portray you? How do you want your friends to portray you? What do you want to be known as? And if that's, if that's truly what, what you think the, the mark of, of a strong man, and that's what, uh, the mark of a strong leader is, is having a good draw time and a, and a strong deadlift. Um, and, and, you know, being so emotionally closed off and cold that, yeah, I can, I can react and I can survive, but cool. We're not in survival mode right now. We're not. We're, we're not, we're, we're in the USA. Like I, I can go down to Starbucks and grab a coffee if, if I need to, I can go have a smoothie and sit down outside and not worry about dying. So the next, you know, plausible steps are opening yourself up and, and being more emotionally available and breaking down those walls to make sure that your family does feel safe and cherished and open to discuss their issues with you. You know, break the cycle seriously, because so many of us endured that, that closed off or that, you know, being un- emotionally unavailable from your parents or your family or whatever it is, you can be the opposite. You can be somebody who's open to those people um, and and really make a change, make a big positive change, but it starts with ourselves, right? And you have to be willing and you have to not stigmatize it for, your, for yourself. Don't ruin it for yourself. Don't, don't call it lame or, or you know, stupid to, to, to talk about your emotions or be vulnerable. Don't, don't laugh it off. Like you can have serious open conversations about it and, and address it and approach people with love and approach people with compassion and empathy. It's okay to do that. It doesn't make you any less of a man. And in fact, I, I argue the complete opposite that it makes you a more whole human concept, right? If you're closed off and you're emotionally vacant, good luck. Like that's, that's all I have to say. Like good luck in, 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 you know, existing relationships good luck in maintaining those long-term relationships uh you know good luck with finding happiness because it's going to be a lot more difficult and it's self-imposed because you have a certain view or a certain aspect of of what you want to call it you know i think it's important absolutely well it mirrors something that i've talked about recently when you look at what a man or a woman should be it would be a yin and the yang the uh, the complete circle um, the, and obviously there's a piece of each in the, in the other. And you look hand on heart why 
99% of us entered some sort of uniform profession, it's truly to serve. It's coming from a place of kindness and compassion and love. Yes. Then, whether it's whether it's a conscious thing or a subconscious thing, then as you transition out, what I see, especially in men, is that yin-yang becomes a white circle, which I think is all yin, if I got that right. I, I always <laughs> butcher this example every time. I gotta look it up one day. Um, but anyway, we're, we're a, a white circle, which is all hard, no soft. And you believe in that facade of masculinity, the John Rambo Terminator bullshit that so many of us watched and yet none of these people actually ever served. Um, and so you come out the other end and you've lost that ability not only to be kind and compassionate to other people, but also to yourself. But once yes. you realize, especially in your transition, that you can carry on that service. You know, we're about to go on 7X, which we'll get to next. But I started a podcast for so my ego. I've said this before. There is no shirtless podcaster calendar. So the firefighter <laughs> side is gone. You know, the, the what I used to call the magic pants. You put them on, all of a sudden you seem to be attractive to the opposite sex. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, my ego has to just let that go. But the, the whole purpose of this and the whole purpose of 7X is because we want to stop people from suffering and dying. That was my purpose. It took me into the fire service, through the fire service, and out the other side. The mission has not changed you're just not in a helicopter anymore. I'm just not riding a fire truck anymore. So exactly. I think that's the big thing as well is we've got to understand that it we were some of the kindest human beings to even enter, to put our lives on the line to complete, uh, protect complete strangers. That mm. is a selfless, kind and compassionate act. But once you lose that through line, that is extremely dangerous, not only to the people around you, but to yourself. Because if you can't show yourself forgiveness and kindness and compassion, that is what leads so many people down the spiral where ultimately they're suffering, they believe they're a burden to the world, and then they take a selfless act at that broken brain and take themselves out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a downward spiral and it, it quickly goes one direction. And it's 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 a simple formula. It, it really is. Like if you if you stop and you you take inventory of where you're currently at. Where does this lead? Just ask yourself that question. If I continue doing what I'm doing right now, if I'm drinking every night, if I'm not, if I'm not being open about my issues, if I'm not addressing the issues, if I'm just avoidant all the time, if I'm using substances all the time, where does that lead? You can you can pretty much figure it out for yourself. It doesn't take a genius to figure out which direction that goes. So do you, if if you have changes you want to make, take inventory, figure out how to make those changes. And if you don't know how, ask for help because people are willing to help you. If they don't know how, people are willing to you know, push you in a direction or they're willing to ask others for you on your behalf. People are willing to have these conversations and be open. And there's a lot of resources out there too that people are just unwilling to take advantage of or to at least try. You don't have to stick with it if it's not for you, but at least try, like take take a step. Don't, don't do nothing. You have to take at least a step in, in the right direction. But yes. I think it really feeds into to what we're trying to accomplish with 7X, speaking of transitional period. <laughs> Flawless transition. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about this whole project then through your eyes. I know it was kind of an interesting meeting where you and Ryan first interacted and then walk me through, you know, how how you're going to, um, your role in this whole project and, and what you see. I mean, you've come from this incredible mental health story. What is the, your why within this whole thing that we're doing together? Yeah, so so Ryan and I actually met at uh, at a vet's retreat uh, this last October. So uh, yeah, Ryan Birdman Parrot, uh, ladies and gentlemen, 
Love that guy. Anyways, uh, we met uh, doing our, our Ibogaine 5-MEO journey together, which uh, is a whole other story. He's got uh, he's got a nickname for me. He calls me Venom. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, my face was melting and I looked like the, the Venom creature from the Venom movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he calls me now. Anyways, uh, he, he told me about the project and what, what they were trying to accomplish. And, and it resonated so deeply with me, not only, you know, being an extreme sports my entire life um, and, and being a, you know, a pro skydiver for a while and, and base jumper and all that. Um, aside from the, the skydiving aspect, he said, we're, we're trying to figure out the broken physiology that so many of us have and how to repair it properly because the military and public service and, and special operations primarily, they do a really good job of preparing you for war and preparing you to, to fill your role and preparing you for combat or whatever it is. They do a terrible job of post-service follow-up. And that moment that you're done with war, okay, go on, go on vacation. What do you do? Well, I, I want to go drink. Okay. You go do that. And it's acceptable. Okay. Uh, you know, or you, uh, I'm struggling. Okay. Well, you're no longer in the military. Go figure it out for yourself. And that's it. That they leave you high and dry. And that's, that's ultimately what happens. And it only heads one direction. And he said like, we're, we're going to break people's physiology to the point of, you know, simulating combat or simulating a tour overseas or whatever it is and, and bring them back and study to figure out exactly how to put them back together so that they can do it again, or or that they can, you know, uh, at least have some longevity with life afterwards. They can reintegrate. They can become themselves again, and not just have these broken pieces. Whether that's on the mental health side, whether that's physiologically, um, like we need to study that and figure out exactly how and why, and then you know disseminate that information to everyone else. And when, when he told me that, I'm like, oh, dude, this like. I'm all in like that. I'm a hundred percent behind this. That is, is a huge passion of mine trying to ensure that people recapture and reclaim their lives and, and uh, you know, try to face those, those demons and those hard parts, whether that's mentally or, or physically figure it out. Like how, how can I continue progressing? How can I continue living? Um, and I think that's a, a really wonderful thing that this project has to offer. Not only the excitement aspect of it, right traveling and skydiving and base jumping on all seven continents. Like that's, that's a dream come true for an extreme sports junkie like me. Like I'm, I'm all about it. Like, I love that, but it's, it's such a smaller aspect of, of the entire picture and like what we're going to be able to do and like the people that we're going to be able to help this, this could be a tremendous impact across many, many communities and not just special operations or military or even just us, but like NATO allies allied forces, other first responders, like, the, you know, UK, like, uh, like all over, like we have multiple countries involved in this. We have a huge, huge aspect of uh, the research and study, uh, the amount of work that they're putting into just leading up to departing. I mean, the magnitude is, is phenomenal. And I think the the data we're collecting is, is really going to showcase how to change and how to effectively implement the proper steps for recovery for each of these individuals and developing the human performance manual, right? The ultimate goal of this, a book on how to do it yourself or how to do it for others. That is ultimately going to save lives, help people reintegrate appropriately, help families mend, help individuals mend 
and and increase the the and prolong the lifespan of these operators and these individuals in their in their roles. Um, honestly, I think it's invaluable, uh, and I'm I'm so so incredibly excited uh, to see what what comes from this. I, I truly think this is going to be a pivotal moment for for the entire community, um, and I think it's going to change the way that that uh, that we wrap up people's careers or at least, you know, who knows, maybe midway points, quarterway points, like it's going to increase the longevity and the lifespan of individuals and families and, and the entire community as a whole. I truly believe that. Well, firstly, that was beautifully put. That was probably the best summary of what we're doing. I've heard yet. So thank you. But secondly, I mean, teleprompter, you know, But secondly, I mean, you know, as you said, we got the skydive, then then we got the the guys doing the marathon in each continent, then we got the swim. Um, so you've got you know Antarctica, which is extreme cold. We got Perth at that time will be their summer, so it's going to be blistering. Um, yeah. You know, you've got the sleep deprivation, you've got the uh, circadian rhythm changes from different time zones. You got living on a plane, barely showering for you know a week plus. So there's yeah. all these different compounding elements that you said they're going to break it down. But then the people looking at the data, you know, we got some of the best people in nutrition, physical therapy. You know, we got one of the best plastic surgeons on the planet on our team. I mean, just so many great minds that are going to be able to take this data and analyze it. So you're not just like, okay, here's you know, here's a 10-day push-up plan or whatever, but they're truly going to be able to pull the real truths and common denominators out to then be able to lay out something that I would argue is probably not really been done before to look at mental health through a physical health lens as well so the holistic human rather than okay here's here's a mental health book or here's a you know pt book or whatever but but the whole thing encapsulated into one yeah absolutely and i i I couldn't be more excited for that um yeah and like 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 you mentioned the the extremes that that we're going to be undertaking obviously you you and i aren't aren't running the marathons right (laughs) Thankfully, <laughs> and so it, it, I mean that is a, a major feat. Being able to run seven marathons in seven days, like one, well, I'm good with one marathon. Seven sounds really difficult. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah. Those guys are are those those are some troopers right there. That's for sure. Um, but like you said, like these are extremes people have never endured or put themselves in. Going from uh, the high altitude skydive and marathon that we're going to be doing in Antarctica, right? we're going to be expecting wind chill of down to negative 150, negative 200, and within a 24-hour period. So it's a negative 200 degrees exposure right into a marathon, hopping on an airplane, headed to Perth where it's summertime, ambient temperatures are now 85 degrees. So now we've had this near 300 degree, 250 plus degree excursion, right? That translated, like exposing yourself to, to things like that in conjunction with the flights, compounding with exerting yourself, you know, phenomenal amount of exertion. Uh, I think we're really pushing people to the, to the breaking point and we'll really be able to figure out like, what are the steps we need to take to rebuild these people? I know you'd ask my, my role on, on the seven X project. So I'm one of the medical coordinators for it. So I'm, I've developed uh, the emergency evacuation plan and basically the nine one one plan, right? So if an individual does get injured, uh, you know, triaging, determining the, the the type of injury and whether we need to transload or or evacuate them from the area. So we have a skydiver that crashes, or if we have a marathon guy who, you know, whatever happens, if they overexert themselves, figuring out that 911 plan, 
um, in each individual country with the timeframes that we have, right? So there's a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot of people going on this trip too. There's, you know, there's almost a hundred people overall on this trip that, that are involved. Like that's a, it's a massive amount of individuals and ensuring that we have medical coverage for all of those individuals while they're both co-located and separated. So to developing that plan uh, has been uh, part of my, my duties as well as acting as one of the, the skydivers and, you know, videography, photography, uh, aerial videography and photography is something that I do. So I'll be getting some pictures and videos in the air of uh, us jumping, as well as some of the VIPs on their you know, tandem experiences, getting pictures and video of all that. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really honored to be uh, uh, chosen for, for for this team. It's uh, very exciting. <laughs> it really it's is. It really, I'm the jack of all trades. I'm paramedic if needed um i'm assisting on all the sports sides of support and the athletes from a kind of sports science perspective and then uh, obviously part documentarian when it comes to these interviews and i think i'm going to be doing some narration on the documentary from what i understand as well so i'm just kind of like cribbing i'm trying to fit in wherever you guys need me so typical i hope, fire I hope fire. you narrate the whole thing because i mean the accent is it's it's so helpful it's <laughs> so helpful it's disarming it's enlightening I hope you narrate the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited. We've got some, some amazing people behind the documentary. So we shall see how that unfolds. All right. Well, I'd love to throw some quick closing questions at you before I let you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first one I love to ask, we talked about hopefully the potential manual that will come out of this particular project. Are there any books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Uh, honestly, um, I know it's, I know it's thrown out, uh, all the time. I love extreme ownership from a leadership perspective. Um, that is one of the first books, one of the first leadership books that made a big change for me in, in realizing that, um, from a leadership perspective, right. When I was still in the military and, uh, um, you know, being a, a non-commissioned officer, having people underneath you, understanding that you're not there to, to tell them what to do. You're there to support them. And every mistake that they make is your fault. Every time that they are, are not properly trained, if they're not at the right place, right time, right uniform, that's your fault. And understanding how to, how to own that, right? Extreme ownership, own the mistakes as well as own, own the, the winning uh, aspects of it, right? When you guys win, you win as a team. It's nothing that you did individually, but when you lose, it's your fault and your fault alone, right? Understanding that and taking that mindset and being comfortable with that, um, that that changed my perspective, and it changed my leadership style in the military. And now, as a business owner, um, you know, having multiple employees, uh, it's something that I've also applied um, on the on the business side. Is it's important to understand where you're falling short because if your employees are are failing or if they miss something, you didn't do a good job a good enough job of disseminating that information, getting the point clear enough across like their failures or your failures alone and learning how to live with that, learning how to modify and modulate and regulate and, and change or inform them. Uh, you know, there, there's always a better way to do it and figuring out that better way um, is, is important for the, the ultimate um, success of your organization or your company or your unit or you know what whatever area that you're in. So I think that's that's my my most recommended book um, from a leadership perspective, definitely. 
You know, it's funny. I had Jocko on a couple of times, but I had Leif on probably was that three or four months ago now, I think. And he yeah. told the story about the book. And, you know, okay. we would have the perception, oh, these Navy SEALs came out of the SEAL teams and then they wrote this book and then it was huge. And it's amazing. The number of no's that they got, the, the, the effort that it took with a lot of very, very powerful contacts to get that book off the ground. And now this is probably one of the most, you know, um, uh, it's, it's the, the book that comes up the most when I ask this question more in a, more than any other specific title is extreme ownership. So I don't think people realize again, even within their organization, how much fight there was at the beginning of uh, echelon front and extreme ownership. Yeah. It's, it's been invaluable for me. Um, and there's, you know, three books in that, in that series. Now, I think the other two do a fantastic job of buttoning things up. Um, there's, things that are obviously geared more towards the military, but just taking the lessons that they learned and that they've tried to uh, imbue in, in that book, it's really important. Um, and I think they are applicable in everyday life. Even if you're, you know, you're nine to five as an accountant, there, there is something that, that you can own for yourself. And there, there is something that you'll take out of that book for sure. Absolutely. Well, what about a movie and or documentary that you love? Ooh, does it have to be relative? Or... No, completely completely unrelated if needed oh that's a that's a movie or documentary honestly um i have uh i have kind of like very very narrowly focused interests when i find something i like i get obsessed and sometimes it's like very i'm very nitpicky with it um i have a thing for uh uh time travel movies and my my favorite movie of all time is called predestination it's got ethan hawk in it <clears throat> most people haven't seen it it is one of the most unique time travel stories. It's paradoxical. It's interesting. It's engaging. It's like a time travel kind of a secret agent. Um, but the way that they close the loop at the end, uh, it'll, it'll blow your mind. And it's very, very unique. Um, it has nothing to do with anything else we've talked about here today. But it's one of my favorite. I could watch it anytime, any place. I could watch it a million times. It's one of my favorites. Um, and a documentary uh, that I love. Um I'm kind of all over the place with different documentaries. I really do enjoy uh, I, I enjoy a lot of the Netflix series that have been coming out lately. They've been really highlighting um, some faults in um, in the things that we've experienced the last 20, 30, 40 years, especially when it comes to like a lot of the lies that were um, basically spread throughout the country, like uh, the their new uh, documentary Xanax. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, basically, but I need to. Dude, it, 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 it breaks down like the atrocities that are Xanax and SSRIs and just blindly giving people prescriptions for this shit, right? As you and I both know, it's it can be used as a tool. Absolutely. Our SSRIs, can they be good? Sure. Can they be used as a tool? Sure. How are they used in the United States? They're used as a permanent Band-Aid for so many people. I mean, people start taking them, they... Like I'm depressed. I need antidepressants and now I'm better. That's not how they work. They're a tool. And this, this, uh, docuseries or yeah, docuseries called Xanax. It focuses specifically on Xanax and the amount of doctors who just prescribe it as, as a, as a cure-all. Oh, you have anxiety? Take some Xanax. Oh, your anxiety is gone. Congratulations. What do you mean you're a zombie? That's, that's what happens. So people take the Xanax, they turn into a zombie. They have no emotions. They have no feelings. They try to come off the Xanax. And now your anxiety is tenfold. Well, your anxiety is going to maintain and stay tenfold because you're no longer on the Xanax. So what do you do? 
do you hop back on it and become a zombie or do you have this horrible anxiety you have to live with that's now compounded and there's no like no one's taken any approach on how to cure it how to fix it how to wean off they've just prescribed it and they let people live with it and i think it's a it's an atrocity to, to be honest and i think it there is a, a big overlapping element with the psychedelic um like this new resurgence of psychedelics um I could go down another rabbit hole on like big pharma and, you know, turning like 5-MeO-DMT. It's, like, it's a class one substance. There's no medical use for it. Like, are you fucking kidding me? So like there's an obvious medical use for it. The SSRIs, oh, uh, now it's just come out in this last year that, yeah, it doesn't actually do anything. Like it's not an actual chemical imbalance that we're solving. <clears throat> it's just flooding you with more uh, serotonin. Congratulations. Like you're just medically altering people's minds to make them think that they're feeling better. So highlighting that and the fact that they're starting to address this stuff a little bit more often, um, I, I'm, I'm all about it because when, when, when these people who have this much control, like these pharmaceutical com companies, they have so much control over the entire population of the world, right? By holding on to this shit or by, by um, disseminating like SSRIs and, and stuff like this, it's a, such a disservice and it's disgusting and to see him get poked in the eye a little bit makes me real happy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> makes me real happy. Well, I'm yeah. trying to, I'm waiting. Hopefully I'll get uh, Beth Macy on. She's the one that wrote Dope Sick. I don't know if you saw that series, yeah. but again, you know, oh, yeah. we get to actually see behind the curtain now, but I've talked about this. If you just take hypertension meds for a sec, not even the, uh, the mental health side as a paramedic, you know, Every medic and EMT around the country right now can tell you of the countless people that they've lost in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s from obesity. Well, those people yeah. went into doctor's offices and they said, well, if you take this medication, let me check your blood pressure now. Oh, you're good. It's 120 over 80. You fucking nailed it. No, yeah. you're still dying. You yeah. just put a Band-Aid over that person too. And so you know, when we talked before we start recording about you know the, the firefighter's perspective behind the curtain, this is one of the most powerful things. My face is the last thing that so many people have seen as I'm putting pads on their chest and you know sticking a tube down their throat. And it's the same thing. The wife or the husband hands you a fucking garbage bag full of meds. They can label every name, you know, the drug dose, the frequency, but none yeah. of it worked. They still died, but they died tens of thousands of dollars poorer yeah. rather than being told, here's how you need to move. Here's how you need to eat. We need to do some mental health counseling. This is probably behind why you're having these life patterns that you have at the moment. Um, you know, and, and it's proactive and preventative. So, I, I mean, these documentaries, it is amazing that they're coming out now and these stories are being told because some of these drug companies... Like um, Viagra, I saw, I forget which documentary it was, but Viagra, ED, erectile dysfunction, was mm. not a medical term. It was made up in an ad agency. And what people <laughs> don't realize is that the erectile dysfunction, like not being able to get a boner, is a terrifying <laughs> red flag that you have heart yeah. disease. Yeah, absolutely. Not that you need a little fucking pill, but you yeah, need to go yeah. and start running and eating lettuce, otherwise you're going to die. You know, yeah, and so like this there, is there's an underlying cause. Yeah, right? exactly. So I, I mean, it, I, this mirrors, as you said, the mental health stuff, the physical health stuff. There are some phenomenal drugs that your PJs had in their med box that I have in my med box that will truly save life. Narcan, incredible drug. Yeah. You know, D50, incredible drug. But there are so many for chronic diseases that are nothing but you know that they're, they're just creating 
addicts. Simpler, but it's a it's a, a an accepted form of addiction. But you're told, well, you have high blood pressure for the rest of your fucking life. You're going to be mm-hmm. on this cholesterol med, this hypertension med, etc. So I'm so glad that these these conversations are starting to be had now. Yeah, and addressing, like you said, addressing all aspects, the whole human concept, right? That's that's the approach that we have to start taking. If you're if you're throwing medications and drugs at people left and right, well, yeah, it's going to have this side effect. So we're going to also prescribe you this one to combat that side effect. But it does come with another side effect. So we're going to prescribe you another one. And it's this endless trail, and it just continues and continues. It's this vicious cycle that feeds into it. And again, like you said, it ultimately it just leads one direction. You will die early because you're masking the problems. You're not addressing the problems. And there's so many compounding factors, whether it's, uh, you know, economical factors or, or societal standards with, you know, calling fat people beautiful now and like praising people like because they're obese, like, okay, like if, if you want to, but I know you're not going to live past 50 and that's just a fact, like, good luck. If you, if you want to call yourself beautiful up for up to 50 years, that's great. But guess what? You can uh, tack on another 50 years of your lifespan if you, uh, you actually start doing some work. Yeah, I, I could talk about, I don't want to get too hot and heavy on that, <laughs> on that stuff. <laughs> but again, it's, it's kindness and compassion. You shouldn't be shaming someone because they're over, overweight. You should be grabbing their hand and saying, let me lead you down the wellness path. Because, exactly. yeah. you know, just say, saying I'm fine as I am, you know, is is it's heartbreaking because people that truly are on the wellness platform altruistically want everyone else to experience what health feels like. It's just the same way as after the therapies that you found, you're screaming from the rooftop. This is what incredible mental health feels like. I want all of you to understand this. And so, you know, it's not coming from a, a place of meanness. There are mean people out there, but most people want you to be able to move better and lose weight because you're going to realize life is even more amazing if you truly find the physical and mental capacity of this gift that is the human body. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't say that from a place of shame uh, in the least. Um, it, it is truly from a place of compassion. Like, I, I want people to be healthy. I want people to be happy. That's... I think that's what the human experience is truly about. It's not about dollars in your bank account and, and the things that you have or, uh, you know, any of that, that materialistic shit. It's, it's about being happy. It's about being healthy. It's about having good relationships with people. And that's, that's ultimately what it is at the end of the day. And if you're lying to yourself about the issues, whether that's your weight or your health or your mental health, you have to be honest with yourself. And if you're not, if you're unwilling to do that, you're going to, you're going to deal with the consequences. And that's just the reality of the situation. Like you can't, you can't out, outlie reality, <laughs> right? You can't, can't outmaneuver reality at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Absolutely. I think uh, my, my business partner, best friend, uh, David Reed uh, is, is, very, very interesting, eclectic individual. I think you would love to have on. He's a former 275 Ranger. He got blown up in Afghanistan, uh, lost his left leg. Since then, he's led philanthropic efforts uh, for for years now. He's uh, been the president of the Robert Irvine Foundation, which is a a foundation that we're um, uh, the Medevac podcast is sponsored by. We're both very involved in. They do a lot of philanthropy for military and veterans. 
they're a multi-million dollar organization that um, primarily focuses on mobility devices, um, service animals, as well as like a multitude of different things for military veterans and Gold Star families. Um, they have fantastic events, but um, it's really cool to see the mobility devices. That's that's my favorite part of what that foundation does um, is, you know, giving these paralyzed or uh, individuals or am amputees um, who are limited and confined to a regular wheelchair. They give them these power wheelchairs to help them traverse uh, harsh terrains. Like you can go out in the woods, you can go to the beach. Something that a lot of people don't consider is you can't roll a regular wheelchair out to the beach. So if you're paralyzed, guess what you don't ever get to do again, unless you have a power wheelchair or unless you have somebody carry you out there, right? So they're limited on things like this. Um, so to see them receive things like that, it's huge. Robert Irvine Foundation is fantastic. Check it out. Um, but yeah, David, uh, he is, uh, he works there as well. He's as my business partner. He co-owns Terra Arma uh, with me, which is our outdoor clothing company. Um, and he's, he's come a long way. He's traversed a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of harsh experiences coming from, you know, childhood abuse and trauma, um, you know, escaping that into the military, uh, right into more, more harsh environments of, of being blown up and, and enduring recovery and now being a, a face uh, for, for injured service members and, and a face of what resiliency looks like and what it's like to properly recover and, and take ownership for your own, own recovery and, and, you know, be, being a, a beacon of light for resiliency, to be honest. Um, I think, I think you'd have a really good conversation with him. He's a, he's a fantastic individual. Beautiful. Well, let's make that happen then. Thank you. Yeah, man. absolutely. Yeah, of course. All right. Well then the last question before we make sure where to find you and all of the other things that you've mentioned, what do you do to decompress? Uh, honestly, I have been, uh, so, so I got out of the military in, in 21. And since then I've taken on business full time. So between the, the podcast that we run the medevac podcast and Terra Arma, I have really inundated myself with work. Um, so I, I, I tout mental health a lot and I've been, uh, I've been at fault by, by not focusing on myself as much as I need to. Um, and I take responsibility for that because we have employees. Um, we have people we have to take care of, make sure that they're fed, their families are taken care of, right? Um, but uh, recently, I've, I've really started to push and and make sure I'm taking the appropriate amount of time for myself. Um, but the big thing is my outlets have always, my biggest outlet as an adult has been skydiving. Um, so I recently got recurrent again. Uh, I took a I took like a year break after skydiving full-time and, and being an instructor and everything, I got a little burned out from, you know, a couple thousand skydives over a couple of years. Um, so it's nice to get back into that. Uh, it's nice to get back into to jumping again and doing it for as, as a fun outlet and a hobby instead of work. Um, so that's been exciting. And, and obviously leading up to the 7X project, uh, it's, it's pretty imperative to make sure that I'm proficient at that. Um, and another thing, uh, you know, two other areas that I focus on are, are physical and, and mental health. So my physical health, I'm, I'm in the gym, you know, five or six days a week. I like to, I like to lift heavy things. I'm not a very big guy, but uh, I like to lift heavy things and make sure that I'm staying in shape. It's a fantastic outlet, both to, you know, blow off steam, make sure that I'm, I'm squared away on, on my mental health. It, it also helps provide some structure for my day. I know that if I put the gym at the same time every day, it helps you know, curate the rest of my day to have a nice flow to it. And then uh, obviously on the mental health side, 
Um, I, I like, uh, psychedelic medicine is, is huge, but it's also a crutch for a lot of people. So using it sparingly, using it appropriately, um, every once in a while, I, I like to experience uh, that and use it from a medicinal standpoint. Um, I, I don't, I almost never, uh, do, do anything recreationally anymore. Um, so I, I use that, uh, to help bolster up my mental health every once in a while. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's been extremely helpful for me, obviously, like we talked about quite a bit. Um, and then meditation as well. So meditation is one of the biggest things I've incorporated that into my daily routine. Um, I meditate every evening before bed and that helps, um, it puts a lot of things in perspective and I know, uh, people, people shit on meditation a lot, or they say that I, I can't do that, or I don't know how to do it. It's really simple. Download a, a meditation app. Um, it'll walk you through a guided meditation and just being quiet with your thoughts for a few minutes or being present with an emotion is one of the most powerful things that you can do for yourself on the mental health side. And for me, I found that it's invaluable. If I'm having anxiety, I won't, I used to fight it or I used to ignore it or I used to try to mask it. Right now, what do I do? I stop, I close my eyes for just one minute. Like I, I can set a timer on my phone. I close my eyes and I just try to sit with that emotion for a single minute without thinking of other things. And I try to focus on that. And when I open my eyes after a minute, the amount of relief that I have after doing that is so prof is so extreme. Uh, I mean, a, a night and day difference and being able to understand how to navigate that. Um, it, it's not difficult. It's really not. And I, I, I advise everyone that I know to try meditation, to give it a shot, incorporate it in your daily routine, much like the gym. If you don't start going, you're not going to get good at it. If you're not good at meditation, it's because you've never tried. <laughs> Give it a shot. It's not hard to learn. It's not hard to do, but you have to try. You have to be consistent. And then you'll start to see the positive benefits from it. So those are the things that for my whole human concept that I really try to focus on all of those aspects and, you know, making sure I'm taking care of myself at the end of the day. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I swear by Headspace. I've used it for years and kind of fell yeah. off the wagon a long time, but I'm, I'm back on it now. And not every single day, but almost every single day. And I'm still, you know, three weeks in now, I think. So, you know, still early days, but it's amazing when you sit and you're like, wow, now I can feel that knot in my stomach. Or, you know, I could, there's freaking thoughts bouncing around my head like a bingo machine. And then, yes. you know, two or three weeks later, you're like, oh my God, I don't, I want to add five minutes to my meditation. This isn't long enough anymore. So it's, it's incredible, but it's really fucking uncomfortable when you first start, especially yes. if you're in a bad place. But if you dig in, and be as courageous with your own self-care as you are in your profession mm -hmm. the 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 payoff is incredible absolutely is that something that you deal with the balancing thoughts the running thoughts oh god yeah my mind is like a, a but it but it works meditation works it calms it and that's what i i had a low totally blindsided me um about a year ago now um and i just had full-on burnout i hit a wall and really experienced both anxiety and depression at the same time. I had that feeling that people describe of your you know, skin crawling. And then I also mm. had the thing, this beautiful oasis. My mom and uh, stepdad um, in Portugal, which is very arid, but he's such an incredible gardener that this place is just birds and flowers and everything just looked gray to me. And it was just so weird. Yeah. But I made this this decision every single day come hell or high water i'm going to do 10 minutes of meditation 10 minutes of yoga and as i mm -hmm. went through when i got back from that trip i stopped you know drinking socially as well and then it yeah. just started improving 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 but um but yeah i mean i've 
but I described that very thing. I'm like, when you listen to people that are, you know, experts in mindfulness, whatever, you hearing people talking about, you have 10,000 thoughts a day, but I think it's like the 100 thoughts over and over and over again. So <laughs> what I saw is like each of those thoughts in that bingo machine is important. They just don't need to bounce around. So basically meditation turned off the fan in the machine. The things mm. are still there that I need to address in my life, but they're yeah. not bouncing around to where I can't even focus on anything. Yeah, I, I, I definitely resonate with that. For me, I know it's always what I have to do the next day or that week. It's always about work. There's my, my looming thoughts. It's about work, the things that I have to accomplish tomorrow or the rest of the week. And those are the things that I can never get the revolving, revolving. And for me, like the biggest com combat uh, combat to that, I have, a, I have a notepad and a pen that sits next to my bed. And when I sit down at night, I always have those running thoughts. All right, you got to do this in the morning, get, get to your emails. You got this project, you got to close out, send these invoices. I just write them down and I put a checkbox next to them. I put an empty checkbox and I write, send invoices to customer, you know, uh, follow up on emails, you know, check in with employees or whatever it is. And I, I set them there and like, is that all my thoughts? Is that all the things that have been bouncing around? Yeah. Okay. And I set it down and instantly those thoughts, they're gone. Like I, I don't have to worry about them anymore. I don't even have to think about them because they're right there. I know I'm going to look at it in the morning and I get a huge sense of relief um, subconsciously, sometimes overtly. When I get one of those things done and I check that box, whoop, done. Whew. Oh, I got one of my things done. I feel good now. Yeah. Check another box. Ooh, man, I feel good now. And just those little things, taking those little steps, man, it's it's so invaluable. There's so many ways to combat them that it just takes a little bit of effort, a tiny bit of effort. You know, otherwise we're gonna sit there for two hours and just think about the same thoughts over and over and over and not go to sleep. And now your sleep schedule's thrown off. Now you're tired the next day. Like just take a minute, think about these things, let them process, write them down if you have to, and then move on. It's yeah, it's simple. It's simple. It's not difficult at all. Absolutely. Another big distraction for me, I don't know if you suffer from this, is the whole social media thing is it's truly irrelevant. It's important that we have a community that I'm able to say, hey, this podcast went out today. You know, sometimes it was in person. Hey, we just did this. It'll be out, whatever. But I don't put a lot of value in the ability to disseminate information on social media. But the metric that is important is how many downloads, how many plays, because that's an opportunity for someone to listen to this, this conversation today and yes. truly save a life, like truly, truly save a life. But the downside is I kind of sometimes get sucked into the metrics, like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, this many plays less than last week. And that I have to put my phone down and just be like, fucking publish it and just don't worry about it for a week, you know? But you know that it it's a it truly is a rewarding metric because you know it's affecting people, but it can be kind of a, a huge distraction as well. Absolutely, yeah, it's a fine line to walk. You know, especially with the podcast, or you know, if, if it's your livelihood too, right? A lot of people like their full time job are podcasts, or their full time job is is relative to social media, right? But uh, I find myself in that aspect because I, I I run a business, we have a direct consumer arm where it's, it's not the, the biggest thing we focus on. Most of our business is direct government, which takes no marketing necessarily, but there's a big aspect with our direct consumer. It, it's, it, it's solely focused on, on social media and the metrics there matter because that is the amount of money that we're generating to continue feeding our employees and continue feeding myself, making sure that, you know, I can survive. So do I have to focus on it? Yeah. Does it, is it a huge distraction? 
also, yeah, mm-hmm. like it's detrimental when I sit there and I'm like, man, you know, we're only at a 30% engagement rate, not these, you know, we're, we're filming videos and not many people are seeing them. Like, like it's not, it's not important. Like that's, that stuff doesn't ultimately matter at the end of the day, but it is a fine line to walk because it also does matter at, at some, in some aspects of my life. Like it's important to make sure that, you know, we're continually generating revenue to make sure that, you know, just like I said, <laughs> we've got to feed people. Um, so yeah, it can be a huge distraction though. And I think, um, I have a limiter set on my phone, um, for Instagram or, or I don't, I don't use Facebook. I think Facebook's it's fucking garbage. Yeah. <laughs> used to be great oh. when it was real friends, but when it, when they think, so, oh, you might be, you might be a business and I'm not, you know, I'm not, my Facebook isn't a business at all. It's like, yeah, I'm going to let no one see any of your posts from now on unless you pay me. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dude, I don't know if you if you use Facebook at all. I hopped on there the other day and watched a video or like a couple of like the the reels. It can't be real people. Like the, everything on there, everything about it is fake. It's not real at all. Like I, I, I'm so baffled by it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like the content that's being produced there, it's it's all fake. It's all meaningless, and it's a time suck for no reason. Uh, so I, I have a limiter on my phone. Like I have it set to to an hour. Like I have to, like I have to check in with stuff throughout the day because it's it's relative to the business, but at the same time, like I don't have to sit there all day and be on it and like just consume content. And a lot of people are on seven, eight, ten hours a day. Like they are wrapped up. That's where their entire life is lived online, mm-hmm. and they're missing out on everything else. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, mm. so where can people find the Medivac podcast and where can they find uh, Terra Armor if they're interested in the clothes as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the Medivac podcast it is produced by a Black Rifle Coffee. So we're on the Black Rifle Coffee Network. You can find us uh, on their Spotify, Apple, uh, YouTube, pretty much anywhere you can listen to uh, podcasts. You can just type in Medivac podcast or Black Rifle Coffee podcast and you'll find us on their network. Um the the stories and the the discussions we have are primarily about injury rescue recovery and resiliency so we talk to injured folks uh amputees you know guys uh major burns uh paralyzed individuals about what it's like to go through those moments leading up to it what it's like to experience that what it's like to live with it after like an amputee how do you get up in the middle of the night and and get a glass of water right what's that like oh you're you're paralyzed okay what's it like going to the grocery store for you how, what are, the, what are the proper steps you have to take? And what are your limitations with that? Um, you know, there's a lot of things about everyday life that they don't discuss. Um, we also feed in stories of, uh, you know, Vietnam era. Uh, we, we've had a, re- a couple of really good stories about Vietnam. Um, it, I, I really recommend checking out some of those episodes. They're, they're really moving and you might shed some tears. That's for sure. They get, they get pretty emotional sometimes, but it's very locker room style, very relaxed, just like you and I are talking here. Um, but we ask hard questions sometimes, uh, in a locker room style, like, Oh, so you, you tried to take your life. Tell us about that. <laughs> so it gets, it gets kind of weird sometimes, but it's, uh, it always makes for a good conversation. And then Terra Arma, um, you can head to terrarama.com or on any of our social media. It's just at Terra Arma, T-E-R-R-A-A-R-M-A. Um, we are an outdoor clothing company. Um, we make uh, we have all proprietary fabrics. Everything is made in-house. It's all reclaimed and recycled materials. And our primary uh, driving force is um, to serve the, the military and first responders. We make ultra, ultra comfortable, ultra durable 
uh, mid layers and base layers for military first responders, special operators. We outfit uh, a ton of uh, pretty much all of Air Force special warfare. We outfit with their base and mid layers um, and quite a few other uh, special units as well as you know firefighters and police officers throughout the US. And we have a big giving aspect. So we have a huge philanthropic arm at Terra Arma. We have a, a, our Ascend Together initiative. Uh, so we offer a military and veteran um, uh, and first responder 501c3 charities. We offer them at-cost clothing for all of their fundraising efforts and for outfitting their employees or any of their donors. So you know a lot of these a lot of these um, charities and organizations are financially limited on the, the swag that they can purchase. So they purchase these like two or three dollar T-shirts that are just garbage. They put their their logo across the chest and then they hand them out at events and no one's ever going to wear it. They throw it in the trash. It's the first place that it sees. So a lot of these charities, they lose out on a big marketing aspect and they lose out um, on, on um, you know, they're, they're just wasting money at the same time. So by going through Terra Arma, they use our, our really high-end, uh, high-quality fabrics um, and we create everything from the ground up for them specifically. Um, so we offer fully customized apparel for them. But what it does is they're paying the same price that they would pay elsewhere for a much higher quality garment that people are actually going to wear um, and they're actually getting, you know, they're receiving fundraising efforts out of that. So it's helping to bolster up their fundraising efforts and, and you know, feeding their mission at the same time. And we also do a lot of media services for, for these charity, uh, these charities as well. So we film short documentaries and commercials for them um, for free or, or at cost. Whatever it costs us to do it is what they pay. Um, it's it's the big, biggest driving force behind is making sure that we're continuing to take care of the community. Um, and there's only one way to do that. It's by, by coming together and, and, you know, picking up the slack and doing the work. Absolutely. Well, that obviously ties into 7X as well. So hopefully yeah. we're going to be sitting side by side in about three weeks time. But I just yeah. want to be, you know, just say I'm so appreciative of, of, again, vulnerability. We talked about that, you know, the, the courageous vulnerability you've had in storytelling and your own personal journey, but also the generosity side. We've been talking between pre and, and record about three hours now. So I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me today. It's, uh, it's, it's been an honor, truly. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to having some fun with you here in a couple of weeks, brother.